0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, why didn't Apple choose ZFS for its fancy new file system? This week, we'll go through the long history of ZFS at Apple, plus how the bad tunnel bug can be used to hijack traffic from any version of Windows, and should we be worried about Intel's management technology that's baked in to your system? Plus, a bunch of great questions, a huge roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 271 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on June 16th, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors DigitalOcean, Ting, and ix systems oh our live stream is sponsored by the amazing scale engine over at scaleengine.com go check that out for your online streaming needs my name is chris and joining us every single week is our host the admin the tech and the teacher mr alan jude welcome back alan hey everybody thanks
1: for watching hello how you feel good trip would, uh good trip yes uh, i wonder how people would feel if they could see how hard i roll my eyes when you do that thing with scale engine
0: <laughs> <laughs> the amazing scale engine and <laughs> I, I I try to you know like it's broadcasting all yes. over the world yeah yes. it's, with, with fancy hands it's just amusing <laughs> huge show today uh, so yes. I'm, I'm glad to have you back because there's a lot to uh, round up
1: yeah like I, I started know, writing the doc well first I was distracted by work all morning but then I ran up sure. here and started working on a doc and I'm just like there's so much stuff <laughs> it's like yeah. the roundup kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger like mm-hmm. half of these could be whole stories if, Yeah, you know yeah. we recorded four episodes a week. well I'll tell you
0: the big stories that we have are, are just mm-hmm. massive and then in fact yes. including one that the audience has written in a lot about and then
1: the stuff that we did put in the roundup is, is fantastic yeah. and we've gotten some great questions we, too uh, a bunch a of a great questions a couple of uh, great Non story things in there too, uh, in the roundup. It's definitely worth looking at. So, there's a bunch, you know, I need to find three hours to take that, go through that video that's in there. So, uh, I mean, I have to ask though,
0: good trip, right?
1: BSD Can went great. Uh, I hope Dan's watching. BSD Can was epic. Uh, it felt shorter this year than previous years, even though it was exactly the same length. Hmm. Uh, you know, I know last year I got there a couple days earlier, uh, and so we got a little more out of it, even. Hmm. Uh, but you know, there was just so much stuff. It was so great. Everything went by so quickly. Yeah. Had a great time, met a bunch of new people, saw lots of old friends. Mm-hmm. It was just so That's much nice. fun. That does sound nice. And we got a bunch of interviews while we were there. Uh, you know, the city only tried to swallow us once. Mm, okay. <laughs> yes. All right. So uh, in the middle <laughs> of the, uh, what was it, the first day? Yeah. Yes, the first day of the Dev Summit. So yeah. two days before the conference ever starts. We're in the middle of the Dev Summit and then all of a sudden the power goes out. No. And it's like, what? And then after a couple of seconds, it comes back on. Uh, and then somebody a couple minutes later looks up the news, is like, yeah, about 500 meters from here, uh, a giant sinkhole has opened up and swallowed the entire street. Oh. So it, it like was like, it's it quickly expanded to the width of the entire street and then started swallowing <laughs> cars and yeah like this is really did, close to where we were did you get a good look at it or did you avoid it um, the, a bunch of people got pictures I got a, a little bit of a look at it when we went out to for gelato now it's like it a tourist attraction a, a bunch of um, restaurants and stuff near there were closed for the first day or two well they made sure that the water was still clean and mm, wow you know, that there wasn't danger of people being in that area and so on well
0: you don't really think about that happening in a major downtown
1: area like that well this was uh, they're in the middle of digging a tunnel for oh, sure and uh, they hit some loose dirt and it all fell out from underneath the street apparently. Okay. Uh, (laughs) It may or may not have been caused by a broken water main. Hmm. So either the caving in into the tunnel broke the water main or the water main breaking made the dirt looser and then it caved in. Yeah. So it's not clear what... uh, the other thing this caused was quite a bit of noise uh, at the dorm where I was staying as a constant stream of cement trucks drove by all night. Uh, they, they put like
0: 400 oh, truckloads
1: no. of cement into this hole. Over oh, no. A couple of days.
0: That takes, and that, that's a lot of trucks. That takes some time. Oh,
1: and they're like right underneath my window almost.
0: <laughs> See, Luckily,
1: I was so tired that okay. I just went straight to sleep. Good. I don't Good. think I went to bed before 3 a.m. any day I was at BSD can. Oh, boy. And I had to be up and, you know, stuff started by, you know, 9 a.m. most days. Holy smokes. So I was getting up at like 8.30 or whatever. So I was very glad to get home and get some sleep. I bet. But at the same time, uh, you know, I I didn't waste any of the time while I was at BSD can sleeping. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. You got a lot
0: done, I imagine. Well, that sounds like quite a whirlwind trip. No wonder why it went by just so dang fast. Mm -hmm. Uh, So should we start the show off with Bad Tunnel?
1: Tell me about Bad Tunnel, Alan. Yes. Uh, So this is new Windows vulnerability that's been discovered. Uh, Having to do with everybody's old friend, NetBIOS. So, Microsoft has patched a severe security issue that is implemented uh, in its implementation of the NetBIOS protocol, which affects all versions of Windows that have ever been released. Yeah, NetBIOS has been around since before TCP IP, really, so... Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Well, I think it's newer than TCP IP, but... Oh, is it? Yes, but... It was oh, on PCs before TCP. Sure, yeah, TTI. of course. TCP/IP's yeah. been around since the 70s. Yeah, yeah of course. Yeah, it was yeah, a yeah, protocol home computers used long before anybody. Yes, I, I did. PC. I did yeah, mean yeah, shipping
0: yeah, implementation. Yeah. Yes,
1: yes, yes. 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 Um, yeah, among more than a dozen other, or sorry, three dozen vulnerabilities fixed uh, in the Microsoft Patch Tuesday this week, uh, there's a fix for this bug. Who the researchers said is probably the worst or the widest impact hmm. in the history of Windows.
0: Ooh, yeah, I suppose so, huh?
1: Uh, an attacker could leverage this vulnerability to pass as a um, uh, WPAD proxy oh. auto-detection yeah. or uh, ISATAP, which yep. is for VPN server, yeah. and redirect all of the victim's network traffic through a point controlled by the attacker. Huh. So this basically allow you to do a man-in-the-middle attack without having to be in the middle by tricking the victim into sending all their traffic to you, and then you pass it on to where it's actually intended to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, the flaw, which the researcher called Bad Tunnel, exposes local area networks to a cross-network NetBIOS name service spoofing. An attacker can remotely attack a firewall or, NAM, or NAT-protected LAN and steal network traffic or spoof a network printer or file server. Huh. So, in particular, having a firewall doesn't help you, and even you know the fact that normally machines behind NAT are hard to connect to from the internet. Uh, with this vulnerability, uh, those machines will connect out to you, and so will be allowed out through the firewall. Hmm. Uh, The flaw is particularly serious because it affects every version of Windows, including long, unsupported versions like Windows 95. Yeah. So this flaw has been around the entire time.
0: So even Windows 10 ships with
1: NetBIOS?
0: Apparently. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Uh, To successfully implement a bad tunnel attack... uh, you just need the victim to open a URL, like with Internet Explorer or Edge, or open a file, like a Microsoft Office document, or plug in a USB stick. Uh, you, may in, you may even not need the victim to do anything when the victim uh, is a web server.
0: Oh, interesting. Yeah, and I just confirmed it, is, does, it, it, does, it, it does, in fact, impact uh, Hit. Windows 10.
1: Yep. Uh for example, if a file URI or UNC path is embedded within a shortcut link file, you know, microsoft.lnk files, mm-hmm. the bad tunnel uh, attack can be triggered at the moment the user views the file in any Windows explorer instance. Hmm. So they don't have to actually open it, just see it sitting there. Wow. It, so it tries Because to, Windows it looks is... at the target, right? Uh-huh. Yep. And figures out what icon to show for it and right. things like
0: that. Because it's sussing out the the uh, yeah, the end. Yep. Huh.
1: Uh, it therefore can be exploited via web pages, emails, flash drives, and any other kind of media, and it can even be effective against servers. Uh, exploitation points remain open for non-supported versions of Windows, such as XP and Server 2003, you know, uh, for which patches have not been released. Uh, so you know, here's a big one that XP is not going to be fixed for for a while, if ever. Yeah. Um, for those operating uh, systems like that. And for those that uh, can't be updated just yet, system administrators should disable NetBIOS entirely. Mm-hmm. Although it's still not a solution, you need to install the patch. Although for XP, there isn't a patch yet, and it's not clear if there will be. Uh, there's more coverage over at ThreatPost, plus the original story from uh, Softpedia. And there's Microsoft's official uh, TechNet advisory about it as well, uh, which I think also mentions the other one. Uh, no, this is just this one mm-hmm. vulnerability. So
0: this works anywhere a UNC path can be embedded, a URI, or no, a URI scheme. Either way. Yeah. So a Windows path
1: uh, or an internet path, and uh, you can totally pwn them and steal all their traffic. It affects uh, Vista, Mm -hmm. Service Pack 2, Server 2008, Windows 7, 2008 R2, Windows Mm -hmm. Mm 8.1, 2012 and 2012 R2, Mm -hmm. Windows RT 8.1 for ARM, Windows 10, Windows Server Core 2008, Windows Server Core 2012 and 2012 R2 and 2008 R2, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, You know, it's basically everything. There are steps on how to disable. um, Okay. NetBIOS okay. and NetBT name resolution uh, at the in the Microsoft advisory. There's a short set of steps. Uh, you can also um, has instructions on how to stop WPAD using a host file entry. Uh, so you can actually oh. break WPAD by adding an entry to your host file. All right. Uh, but yeah, so the workaround steps for it are listed in the uh, uh, Microsoft, Microsoft advisory here. Article. Yeah.
0: Yep. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now.
1: Huh? Yep. Jeez, jeez. Yeah. Every single version of Windows
0: ever. <laughs> yeah. So the host file, interesting. So basically, you create an entry for wpad in the host file. Just make yeah, because it, like,
1: it turns out wpad, it does a lookup. The DNS for it fails because that's never going to be a valid DNS, basically. Yeah. And then it fails over to using NetBIOS name resolution, which is basically you know. Find the Windows yes server pretending to be that name right where your domain controller will and be like oh here's how to use the proxy to get up to the internet except for you trick people into using your proxy and now you steal all their traffic so dis if
0: you're not using NetBIOS disable NetBIOS over TCP yep, yep. on your Windows box just regardless just yep. even after you patch just turn it off exactly besides then it's just Produced less chatter on your surface. yeah it's less chatter on your network too if you ever if you ever do a uh, uh, just like a look at how much traffic goes across a like a hub on a NetBIOS network it's tons of broadcasts constantly hello yep. hello. Uh, wow. Here I am. Elect me. Elect me. So, uh, yes, yes, because you've got to have those browser elections. Jeez, uh, <laughs> I forgot all about that. Oh. In fact, you know, what I used to do back in the day was I would set a reliable Linux Samba server as, like, the winner of the uh, election. So that election, way, yep, because yeah. it was cash, and, and so you'd be able to find the other machines. Yeah, and then it would just work. <laughs> well, any other thoughts on that story, Alan? Uh Nope. All right. Well, then let's take a moment and let's thank IX Systems. Go to ixsystems.com/slash-techsnap to find out more about them. This is a hardware vendor. I think you should find out more about, especially mm-hmm. if you're deploying anything that's important to your business, yourself. If you've got a project that you're working on right now, you really should check out IX Systems. They ha- they build systems from really stuff that works for small businesses, like the FreeNAS Minis, up yeah. to these systems that are unbelievable for open source workloads and all kinds of workloads built around these crazy great Intel processors. Check out this. Blog post. Yes. Hard drives need not apply. Now I, I'm just looking at this picture here on the IX blog. I, if I'm not mistaken, Alan, is this thing lined with the RAM up and down the sides of the case and, and the middle? In the middle,
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, if I remember correctly, this machine has 96 RAM slots. Uh, with right it, 48
0: 32 gigabyte ECC RAM for a total of 1.5 terabytes. Of right, but only half of the RAM slots are full. It has
1: 96 DIMM slots. Yep. Yep. Yeah, you can put 96 DIMMs to support up to six terabytes of RAM <gasps> in this machine. <sighs> uh, and it's got, I'm guessing that's, yeah, There's four processors. You can see three of the heat sinks yeah. are on, but the fourth one's not on there yeah, yet. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, so four processors, each supporting 1.5 terabytes, allowing you to have six terabytes in total <sighs> of RAM. Uh, Plus 24 hot-swappable hard drives, but they went with two
0: 1.2 terabyte SSDs and another two 800 gigabyte SSDs for a total Mm -hmm. of 4 terabytes of blazing fast flash storage. 64 cores built out of four Intel Xeon 16 core 2.5 gigahertz CPUs and a 10 gigabit Ethernet Intel controller with dual ports provides ultimate in storage networking performance. It has a RAID 1 configuration and multiple fans and is powered by uh, six... uh, wow... A uh, thousand six hundred and twenty watt redundant power supply. I guess you would need it, yeah, uh, to keep it all safe and secure. Yeah, that's that's 16 core
1: processors in there. <laughs>
0: yeah, you know that's what's like such a great testament to how IX can custom build solutions for anybody. And it, yeah. you it's know, like
1: they, we, they literally had to
0: custom fabricate metal
1: to fit the RAM in
0: there. We like, you know, this is this is an, this is a super high end, but they they are willing to work with all people at all ranges. I I engage yeah, them that's as
1: a the interesting thing. A lot of vendors maybe would be willing to custom build something like that to do you know, uh, six terabytes of RAM. But if you call them up it's like, yeah, I need a little machine with, you know, like eight gigs of RAM and a couple of NICs and, it, you know, short depth, one U, I, j- I don't want to take up a lot of space and I don't want it to be very noisy. They'd be like, yeah, you know, we have something on the shelf over there or, sorry, uh, where IX custom builds every single thing to the customer's thing because it doesn't make sense for them to keep a bunch of built machines around. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, because they're so integrated in the supply chain with their suppliers, they can Build a brand new server for you from scratch. Yep, uh, you know without that's part of their secret sauce.
0: That is legitimately part of their secret sauce, and they combine that with a great deep bench of. Professionals that are involved with every different aspects of these systems from hardware to the software literally people who are like You know the stakeholders of that open-source piece of software yep. they engage the community at these events you'll often say what well, they were Self. Uh, I saw a great post of their trip to self uh, and I and they were at
1: BSD can yeah, and they went so far you know We talked about how they're part of the community. They donated a free NAS Mini populated with drives Oh, sorry mm. the FreeNAS Mini XL. Oh So they had it on uh, on display at their table all throughout the conference at the very so end, jealous. at BSD can. There's a charity auction. So jealous. Oh, and so it jealous. it off. Uh, uh, I got a your charity Free case. Free NAS <laughs> Mini XL with the <laughs> no. like eight one terabyte drives. Oh, that's nice. It would retail for quite a lot of money. Uh, it sold quite well, although still at a substantial discount. Uh, huh. That's pretty. I think pretty there cool. would have been more bidding on it if more people hadn't had to fly home. And flying yeah. home with a giant box is quite difficult. It's true. Oh, that is true. Uh, wow. But there was a bidding war for that Free NES Mini XL.
0: That's yeah. oh man the yeah. XL. that is that's what I want to go to next. Yep. So you can check them out at ixsystems.com/slash techsnap. Go there, learn more, try out that white paper, support the show by visiting that page and then checking them out. Consider them for your next hardware purchase. ixsystems.com/slash techsnap. Okay, so let's talk about the new Apple file system. Why isn't it ZFS? Everybody, I mean, come on. I looked at this and I thought when I heard about this live on Koi Radio, I thought, is this a fork? is this is ZF- this is not ZFS this is their own custom built file system they claim optimized for SSDs planned to be, re- be released in 2017 and they've even kind of said they're going
1: to open source it to some degree oh i didn't hear about that part yeah um, and then you know the interesting thing is like well we want one one file system we can use on watches phones laptops and servers it's like that's that's quite a wide range and ZFS you know, maybe, I not for watches, doesn't it? maybe doesn't quite fit on a watch. <laughs> yeah. Although, yeah. Uh, as we'll see from this story, which is uh, the story of ZFS at Apple, um, they did have it working on the iPhone. Oh, really? Yes. I don't know. I how didn't well realize they got that right. far with ZFS. Oh yeah, they they were ready to ship it by, by the sounds of it. <laughs> wow. All right, yeah. I'm fascinated, Alan. What happened? Yeah, so this story is less about the Apple file system, which hopefully we'll have more coverage on in the coming weeks as I have time to analyze it and so do some other people. Uh, this is the story of ZFS, Apple's new file system that wasn't. Uh, Fascinating. Basically, the story of ZFS at Apple. Okay. Uh, so this one is written by Adam Leventhal, uh, who, if you don't know, is one of those ZFS developers who designed features like Raid Z3, which was a really big deal. Uh, he also did a lot of work on DTrace. Uh, and he writes a post about Apple's curr- uh, recent announcement of its new file system, APFS. And mostly, uh, th- this is the story of how ZFS was almost Apple's new file system and what happened. Okay. Uh, if you want to learn more about Adam, uh, you should check out BSD Now episode 122, where we interviewed him about ZFS and dtrace and so on. And he tells a bunch of good stories in there. Uh, so going back to 2006, so 10 years ago uh, when this all started. Hmm. Huh. Uh, Adam attended his first uh, Worldwide Developers Conference at 2006 uh, in, to participate in Apple's launch of D-Trace. Uh, so Apple imported D-Trace from Illumos and uh, FreeBSD to uh, Mac OS ten. Right. And that was going to be part of Mac OS X Leopard when it first came out. Uh, Apple completed all but the fiddliest finishing touches without help from uh, the D-Trace team. So Apple didn't actually talk to the D-Trace guys until they were almost done, hmm. which is kind of interesting. Uh, even when they did meet with us, we had no idea that they were just weeks away from the finished product being announced uh, to the world. It was a testament both to Apple's uh, engineering acumen as well as their storied secrecy. Yeah, exactly. They love to keep a secret. Yeah. Uh, Including from the people (laughs) that they could have been a lot of help, I'm sure, while they were doing it. Yeah. Um, At that same worldwide developer conference, Apple announced Time Machine, a product that would record file system versions through time for backup and recovery. How were they doing this? How were they, uh, you know, uh, were they energized by the idea that they might be, uh, be another bit of Solaris technology they could port? Uh, when we launched Solaris 10, D-Trace shared the marquee with ZFS, a new file system that was to become the standard against which all other file systems were compared. Uh, key among the many features of ZFS were snapshots that made it simple to capture uh, the state of a file system, setting the changes around, and recover that data. Right. Time Machine looked f- for... Um, all the world, like a GUI for ZFS. Uh, indeed, the GUI that they had all imagined and hoped to have someday, but was well beyond <laughs> the capabilities I of don't some.
0: know. It was a little silly flying into space, but okay. All right.
1: <laughs> right. Uh, but, you know, when when Chris Moore designed uh, Life Preserver for ZFS and PCBSD, it was like exactly what they always wanted, right? This simple GUI to use to, to have uh, ZFS snapshots be usable by end users. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, the fact that you can expose them via Samba to Windows and make it look like volume shadow copy is pretty good. It's too bad that Sam- the way Samba and volume shadow copy works is they have to name the snapshots in a really strange way. Because hmm. it has to uh, match up to the date format that Windows expects to actually. Because you can't. Windows doesn't expect you to actually name the snapshots, just have date timestamps. So you have to name the snapshots really weird. But anyway.
0: I found the, uh, they found the time machine. Uh... Uh, animation. This is actually from Apple's website right here, so you can see what happens uh, when you launch Time Machine. Like, say you have an external drive, you click the Time Machine button from the current folder, which is kind of a nice thing, and it launches into space, and it gives you this, like, galaxy-like, uh, plane in which you navigate back and forth on with these big arrows. That is...
1: okay. That's just (laughs) goofy.
0: (laughs) Isn't that great? So that was there. Nah, it's serious. like the AI was a little silly, and then of course yeah. it wasn't very easy to to. Now the nice thing about it was, as a user, you just go, "I want to go back to this folder, and I want to take this folder back in time." That interface element of it is kind of nice,
1: but mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, so, anyway, of course, Time Machine had nothing to do with ZFS. After the keynote, we rushed to an Apple engineer we knew. Uh, with shame in his voice, he admitted that it was really just a bunch of hard links to directories. Yeah. Uh, for those who don't know uh, a sim link from a sim tab, uh, this is the moral equivalent of using newspaper as insulation. It's fine until the completely uh, anticipated calamity destroys everything you hold dear. <laughs> uh, so there was no ZFS in Mac OS X, at least not yet. So that was 2006. A few weeks before the Worldwide Developer Conference 2007, uh, nerds like Adam started to lose their minds. Apple really was going to port ZFS to macOS 10. It was actually going to happen. Uh, beyond the snapshots, they would make uh, backing up a cinch. ZFS would dramatically improve the state of data storage for Apple users. HFS was introduced in System 2.1 back Thank before you. OS 10 was called or before macOS was called an OS. So, yeah. yeah, HFS system 2.1. Uh, I don't know what year it was, but that was a long, long, uh, I think 30 years ago. The, right? Yes,
0: it was. And they've modified it since then. I mean, obviously, and so, HFS so,
1: Plus has come along. but Right, but that's just an enhancement of it. Like So, to give you an idea, HFS improved upon the Macintosh file system by adding, wait for it, hierarchy. <laughs> no longer would files accumulate in a single pile. You could organize them into directories. <laughs> so, HFS is Big, winning feature was that you could have directories instead of all your files just in the root of the file system. Innovation, yeah, yeah. I, and I, that I file hate system it. has limped along for more than thirty years. It's plagued, Max. forward. Yeah, uh, originally rewritten to avoid having Pascal code in the kernel, but never reimagined or reinvented. Yeah, so it has been rewritten. Isn't that interesting? But yeah, uh, but yeah. The, you know, it had to remain the same. Well, so it's been you know the code's been changed, but it's never been. The features and and the design have never changed. And they even ship it on their iOS devices. Yep. So they yeah. have these a Macs. power
0: outage and just ruined. They have these. They have these four you know multi-core Macs with uh, brilliant, brilliantly fast PCI SSD storage, and then they have this thirty-year-old file system
1: sitting on top of it. They've bolted a lot of features on top mm-hmm. of it over the years. And they've still been bolted, you know as we go through this timeline, just they're still bolting stuff on last year. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um. So ZFS was to bring OS X data integrity, compression, checksums, redundancy, snapshots, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But while energized uh, Mac and ZFS fans, Sun OS uh, Jonathan Schwartz had clumsily disrupted the momentum that ZFS had been gathering in Apple's walled garden. Apple had been working on a port of ZFS to Mac OS X. They were planning to mention it at the upcoming worldwide developer conference. Uh, However, the then CEO of Sun brought into the loop... uh, either out of a courtesy or some legal necessity, violated the cardinal rule of the Steve Jobs era Apple. Only one person at Steve Jobs' company announces new products. Steve Jobs. Uh, so uh, apparently the CEO of Sun accidentally kind of let it slip in a press conference that OS, uh, Apple was going to include ZFS. And this really pissed off Oh, Apple.
0: yeah. Look at that. You're kidding uh, me. You're kidding me. Yeah, so he me.
1: said, quote, in fact, this week you'll see that Apple is announcing at the Worldwide Developer Conference that ZFS uh, has become the file system for Mac OS X, mused uh, Jonathan at a press event, apparently to bolster Sun's own credibility. Ah, oh, what an Less idiot. Less than a week later, Apple spoke about ZFS only when it became clear that a port was indeed present in the developer version of uh, OS X Leopard, albeit in a nascent form. Yes, ZFS will be there, sort of, but it will be read-only, and no one should get their hopes up. Uh, by 2008, it seemed that Sun had been forgiven for its misstep. Uh, ZFS was featured in the keynote, and it was on the developer disk handed out to attendees. It was even mentioned that the Mac OS X server website, yep. ZFS, was listed on Apple's website as a feature. Apple had been working on the port since 2006, and now it was full uh, functional enough to put on full display. Uh, Adam took it for a spin himself, and it was really real. It was there. Uh, the feature that everybody wanted, but most couldn't say why, was coming. Uh, by the time Snow Leopard shipped in 2009, only a careful examination of Apple's website would turn up the odd reference to ZFS that hadn't been removed. Uh, whatever momentum ZFS had enjoyed within the Mac OS X production team was gone. Uh, Adams heard a couple of theories and anecdotes uh, from people familiar with the situation about why that might be. Part of it was the uncertainty created by Oracle acquiring Sun, and the fact that it took over a year for that deal to close. Uh, Oh, the timing of that, huh? Yep. Uh, Also, um, the most significant, uh, or sorry, the other one was that in the meantime, Sun and NetApp had been locked in a lawsuit uh, since about mid-2007 over uh, uh, NetApp saying they held patents that blocked, you know, that uh, ZFS was infringing upon, Uh, but... You know, ZFS's technologies were all written from scratch uh, and weren't borrowed from somewhere else. So the lawsuit was bogus, but it was enough to scare people away, right? Uh, And then it says, finally, and perhaps most significantly, personal egos and not-invented-here syndrome certainly played a part. He's told that uh, folks in Apple at the time, uh, that certain uh, leads and managers preferred to build their own rather than adapting uh, external technologies, even technologies that were best of breed. They pitched their own project, an Apple project, uh, that would bring modern file system technologies to OS X. Uh, The design center for ZFS was always servers, not laptops, and certainly not phones, tablets, and watches. Uh, Their argument was likely that it would be better to start from scratch than try to adapt ZFS to work on a watch there was also some licensing fud that's thrown in the mix. Even today, people at Apple see the ZFS license as nefarious and toxic hmm. uh, in the same way, whereas uh, D-Trace license uh, is perfectly fine with them. Yeah, well, that doesn't make any sense uh, to me. Note that both uh, ZFS and D-Trace use exactly the same license. Right. With the same grants and the same restrictions. Yeah. How can you say, oh, Zf- D-Trace is awesome. We love it. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. ZFS, oh, the license is toxic. It's like, it's the same bloody license. That's 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 the real inconsistent. Yep. Well, it, it's because it's FUD, right? It doesn't have to make sense. <laughs> uh, yeah. So then it wasn't looking so good. <laughs> and then it, in 2010, uh, ZFS wasn't quite dead yet. Uh, the architect that had driven ZFS at Apple had left. Uh, he now works at Intel on ZFS, I Oh, really? Interesting. Yep. Uh, the, product, uh, the project had been shelved, but there were high-level conversations between Sun and Apple about reviving the port. Apple would get indemnification and support for the use of ZFS, so uh, Sun would protect them from any lawsuits and so on, and would support them using ZFS and so on. So it looked uh, like... In 2010, finally, Apple would use ZFS in OS X, and everybody be happy. Then uh, the Apple ZFS deal was brought uh, up to Larry Ellison for approval, uh, the firstborn of the conquered land, uh, brought to be blessed by the new king. Right, so here's son's baby, and they're presenting it to uh, to uh, the head of Oracle, and being like, you know, look what we can do, and and. Uh, Apparently, the quote from Larry Ellison was I'll tell you about doing business with my best friend, Steve Jobs. I don't do business with my best friend, Steve Jobs. Oh, really? Yeah. Amusingly, the version of the story told at the Worldwide Developer Conference 2016, which is, I think, it was like this week, right? Um, had the friends reversed, with Steve Jobs saying he wouldn't do business with Larry. Still, other versions I've heard call into question the veracity of the purported friendship and have Steve saying, uh, instead suggesting that Larry go fuck himself. <laughs> hmm. You know, so, I, I, I've always heard they are good friends, but who knows, right? Yeah, uh, but apparently those two couldn't get along and that's why they don't have Zeta Pass. Maybe that's how they stayed friends is they didn't do business together. Possibly. that, that I can understand that being a thing. Yeah. yeah. But... Just robbing every OSN user of ZFS is just inexcusable, and they should be put to the death.
0: <laughs> yeah, I suppose maybe at their level they don't really understand.
1: Right, I'm sure that yeah they don't care about what file system you use. They sell how many Macs they can sell. Right? I know, but you know it is it is legitimately one of the worst things about macOS.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> their file system is so bad. And I, and I, you don't really run into it until you're working with really large files and mm-hmm. and moving them around all the time and working with or when over- the network power shares. Or when goes out
1: or when something yeah. crashes or when you want to clone something or... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then Adam goes on, uh, in the seven years since ZFS development halted at uh, Apple, they've worked on a variety of improvements to HFS and their core storage technology and hacked at least two replacements uh, for HFS that didn't make it out the door. So... This is at least really? the third or f- this is at least the fourth attempt to replace HFS. They tried ZFS and they've tried two new file systems since. Plus, I'm sure they tried a couple things before ZFS uh, and they've all been given up on. And then so APFS is their, you know, and eventually they're like, it's been 30 bloody years. We have to ship something. Yeah. Um, uh, this week, Apple announced their new file system, APFS, after two years in development. It's not done. Some features are still in development, and they've announced the ambitious goal of rolling out uh, to laptops, phones, watches, and TVs within the next 18 months. Now, how does he know two years in development? He knows people at Apple that have been working on it. Because I've also heard three and seven. Oh. Which is, I I don't know. Well, I think seven if you include the two aborted things. Yeah, maybe, right? I suppose they learned something from, but I don't think there was any code, shared. Uh-huh. I bet you Um, that. Yeah. So at Sun, they started ZFS in 2001 and didn't ship it until 2005, and that was really the starting line, not the finish line. Uh, since then, Adam helped ship the ZFS storage appliance when he worked at Apple or at Sun uh, in 2008, and then started working on at Delphix, which makes a database appliance based on ZFS in 2010. Uh, each has required the investment in ZFS and OpenZFS to make them ready for prime time. Uh, a broad-featured, highly functional file system takes a really long time to make, and you know, I, I don't expect APFS to be that great coming out the door. Yeah, that's
0: going to be really interesting <laughs> to see how they justify shipping super premium hardware with a really new file system. Mm-hmm. That seems to be the big risk. I suppose what they'll do is I could see in the next uh, macOS release, it will uh, just have it probably available in the command line that you could, you know, using the diskutil command, you could implement it. And then I could see... In
1: particular, it, uh, apparently it will support a migration path from HFS. Yeah. So it will use... Free space on your HFS volume to start writing the metadata over again into the APFS, and you to upgrade in place, like FAT32 to NTFS. It's just huh. super scary. Yeah. Wow. That it makes sense. That that's I understand that why they would want that option. But that is scary as all hell. <laughs> so the one thing that really, I mean, it seems to be a
0: pretty competent file system if everything works out. It's going to have snapshots, and it's going to have uh, atomic well, yeah, transactions. So we've
1: seen a list of, of features, not so much of how well right, how it actually does But you know what? Also, one of the
0: things it doesn't have is one of the things people talk about when they, when people talk about ZFS is they talk about the advantage of preventing bit rot. There's, As far as I know, there's no checksum capabilities in this new Apple file system. So for serious data storage, I, I just, I, okay, on the watch... On the on the laptop, yeah, sure. But on on a server, I, once again, Apple doesn't really seem to be giving two shits about the server market here. Not which is not necessarily new for them. Well,
1: you know, I, I can expect you know if you're doing movie production on uh, OS X stuff, yeah, you're probably not storing it on one of the servers. You bought a giant EMC appliance or something. Yeah, or probably. A I hope appliance. so. But you know, you know the, I, the Star Wars movies are stored on a ZFS appliance from Nextenta. But I'll say up.
0: I'll make. But this point is. The reality is there is there are companies where their entire business model is is they put a Mac Mini in a rack for you and they sell it to you at a premium. Uh, Mac Mini Colo is one of them. But there's also Apple makes a Mac Mini server because there's still demand from their audience. Obviously, I think a big part of it is schools and legacy implementations at schools. But it, so there's that. Uh, and you know, just as an aside, as my personal observation, we have started to just kind of experiment with ZFS on things besides our storage array and uh this OBS machine that we deployed during Linux Fest is an Archbox box, <laughs> uh, running uh ZFS on all all the drives so we even decided to do uh root because we wanted to be able to snapshot before we do major OBS upgrades yep so uh it's or <laughs> before you touch anything in arch <laughs> yeah that too so, it's sort of yeah, it is sort of builds in a bit of a buffer and a bit of a safety there. If you are curious about Apple's new file system, and there's a lot to dig into, uh, I did link in the show notes um, uh, uh, their, their introduction to it um, where they talk about it and what the features
1: are and how you can implement it
0: if you want to get the new public beta of macOS 10.12. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: so, Adam's final thought was that APFS does have some merits, which he'll cover in his next post, which isn't out yet, um, but, you know, I'm looking forward to his analysis of it. Uh, but, you know, it will always... Disappoint me that Apple didn't adopt ZFS, irrespective of how and why that decision was made. Yeah. Uh, dedicated members of the OpenZFS community have built and maintained a port called uh, its OpenZFS on OSX.org. Uh, it's not quite the same thing as having Apple as a member of that community embracing and ascending ZFS rather than building their own uh, incipient alternative. Uh, you, you, yes, know what? I, you know what? seems like the problem is APFS is going to suffer from ButterFS Syndrome. Possibly. Like, oh, that feature's on our roadmap, possibly, or, yeah. you know, it kind of works. I think it works most of the time. The other thing is, how are they,
0: obviously, since it's a new file system, there's going to be revisions and, and improvements with future OS updates. How are they going to manage that compatibility as it goes forward? Are they going to implement
1: yeah. something like feature sets, or are, is well, it... Yeah, because go- in ZFS, they had this whole concept of the file system has a version number, and you can upgrade forward and... Yeah. There's some backwards compatibility, but not really guaranteed. Uh, but you know, ZFS was designed from the beginning to be forward upgradable, like right. that. Right. Yeah. So uh, that's a big now, that's a big question. Future flags were mostly a way around the fact flag, that yeah. um, in Open ZFS, there isn't one developer driving the features. Right, right. Sure. So with Apple, version numbers make sense, and and when Sun ran Z- uh, was the focus of ZFS, version numbers made sense. But with <laughs> Open ZFS, you have like three or four different operating systems all doing their own thing. And you know, a feature usually gets developed on one operating system and then gets upstreamed and then pulled down into the others. And so that's why we use feature flags uh, and basically uh, a flag named after the feature for each feature so that otherwise version numbers wouldn't work because everybody would design yeah. their next feature as yeah, makes sense. n plus 1 and then we'd have you know your version 30 and my version 30 don't even mean the same thing. That'll be the other interesting thing, Alan,
0: is... Because you're they right open right now. It, right? Exactly. And then when they open source it, how are they managing that? Boy, that's gonna be fascinating to see how they and if they do it kind of like yeah, they've done some, Swift.
1: Yeah, I, I don't expect them to take many of the contributions that people make and just include them in the next version of OS ten. Right. So I think they're gonna need something like feature bikes if they do open
0: source it. you know, with Swift, when they when they went open source with Swift, they published the entire commit log and they seem to be actually legitimately taking commits and incorporate it. Well, for so. something
1: like that, for Swift, it makes sense. For a file yeah. system, yeah, I if know. I introduce new feature, and even if it's really good code, there's still that chance that it's a bug, and is Apple really going to ship my feature in the next version and risk that blowing up in their face later?
0: Uh, especially when it's something like it's going to run on watches and stuff, too. Uh, yeah. Here's how you split the difference. I think this is how you solve the problem, if you're Apple. Uh, seriously, you, uh, you ship your new fancy file system on the Macintosh, and then you also, maybe in the next version of macOS or whatever, pick up, does ZFS work? And ship that as an option. Make it an option, just like you know, you could like in macOS right now, you can actually format drives FAT32 and stuff. Like they have all, they have other file systems they'll work with. Yeah, with
1: OpenZFS and UFS, already, it, I think. Th- that's the other thing with with OpenZFS on OS X already being there. Yeah. You know, it wouldn't be that much work for them to clean mm-hmm. up the integration and make it better right. because they have better knowledge of the internals. And then, if, then, say,
0: say, I'm, a, say I'm, a, I'm a pro editor and I have a Mac Pro, uh, you know, one of those trash can Mac Pros, and I have a, th- yep. a $1,500 Thunderbolt uh, storage array hooked up. I could use ZFS. Uh, that is actually a, that is something that happens. That is, <laughs> that is an average work case because you need scratch storage like that when you're editing. That's a very common work case because you have
1: fixed storage in the tower. Well, especially just the way ZFS caches and the way it does uh, Yes. Even random writes in linear format. So I, I, for I, I that it's I epic. think would be splitting it
0: just perfectly. Ship your file system. Put all your energy into that. Ship it by default. But make just like you make
1: HFS, UFS, and MS DOS formats. It, you're Apple. It can't hurt you to make a team of five people to work on keeping the ZFS port. Just hire Wait. one of the guys in the uh, ZFS community. Somebody who needs yeah. a job. Yeah. One of the guys. My, um, I never did get around to interviewing the guy that did own ZFS on OS X. But he's a NetBSD guy, if I'm not mistaken, as well. All
0: right. Any other thoughts on this story? Uh, nope.
1: That's Sorry. Right. That, that story already
0: went on longer. <laughs> well, that's okay. okay. I'll tell you about DigitalOcean. Go over to DigitalOcean.com and use our promo code SNAPOcean to get a $10 credit. Uh, by the way, the block storage signups are apparently rolling out. Noah has gotten his, so I and I don't know if he's got a chance to play with you, but I have not gotten my signup. But if you've signed up, you may be getting yours soon. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering a really great, simple-to-use, fast service. They have SSDs for all of their disks. They have have really great data centers all over the world in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Germany, and India, and their pricing is legit. You can get started in less than 55 seconds, and pricing plans start at only $5 a month for 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. And the nice thing is the pricing plans just make a lot of sense. So they just step it up really simply, and they they allow you to create and destroy machines so quickly that you can legitimately think about this in terms of hours and not necessarily months or days. So when you use our promo code SNAPOcean, you get a $10 credit. If you just wanna go try out a Syncthing thing installation for the afternoon, or a Nextcloud installation, or maybe you wanna just experiment with Nginx, you can go create a droplet and run it I don't know how long is it gonna take you. Four hours, and then shut Mm -hmm. it down. You continue to have that credit for future droplets you want to make. Yeah, it rolls like it just—it's a—it's a a credit you have on the account, so you Mm -hmm. can set up a bunch of machines, including like the free BSD droplets, and play with that. Go experiment with ZFS. Have fun. Right. The other thing that's really great is you can upgrade these machines down the road. So if you decide to put something in production, think about the pricing. It's so straightforward. It's like okay, move it into production. Take a snapshot. Use their great interface to manage it. It's. Totally easy, totally straightforward, and then they have a great API to give you a whole bunch of tools to use in all kinds of ways you never thought possible. Seriously, I control droplets using IRC bots in a chat room. It's, it is it is two 2016. DigitalOcean.com. Just use the promo code SNAPOcean. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. You guys rock! TechSnap. And use promo code SNAPOcean. Also, check out their great tutorials. Always really good stuff over there. Mm -hmm. So, this has got to be one of these stories, I think... I, I saw a thread just this week on the subreddit we've gotten emails about it I, I don't got
1: tweets about it yeah I I, I, I am
0: that. familiar with the concept of um, of like a remote control I, I remember like the smart pack things that I would plug into compact servers and the Dell the boards that would had battery packs on them and modems you'd add a hookup to the phone line and the whole idea was total remote administration of a system it's a concept that's been around for decades and yeah, I guess like I guess
1: every one of my server has it and yeah. I
0: use it all the time and, and for great. a while Intel's been building building some of this stuff into their processors and... Well, it's not actually built
1: into the processor. It's built into the chipset on the motherboard. All right, break it down for me, because that's kind of where I start losing it. So uh, the the biggest problem I have with this article is they keep saying how it's the secret. It's like, well, no, everybody knows it's there, don't they? This is VPro and stuff like that? Yeah, so the the management, part of the implementation is VPro. So part of the idea with VPro is like, oh, so you have, say, uh, you know, when I was a student at the college... You have you know ten thousand computers in this set of campuses, uh, and you want to install the Windows updates on them, but they're you know they're all powered off at night because why do you leave them running right? Uh, what if you could send a signal over the land, wake them all up, let them install their Windows updates, and then go back to sleep or shut down again, right? Or you know you have your IT department is on this side of campus, and the person having the problems on that side. Rather than making them drive or walk across campus, what if they could just remote control the computer? but not depend on the operating system to do it because the computer won't boot. But I need to remote control into your computer and fix it for sure, you. Sure. So you
0: get even BIOS level remote access, right? Yeah. And it's a, it's something that runs independent of the main operating system, so mm-hmm. you can connect to it and, and see the, like the console of the of the remote yeah, operating. Yeah. You system. can
1: access the BIOS and do things. Anybody who's ever exactly been on a tech like call where they've
0: had to drive out to a client or to a, to a to a to a you know a staff member because they had a USB device plugged in and so their system wouldn't boot, and if you could have just remoted into their system and flipped the boot order boot order, so it would have just gone right past that, that that would be Give tremendous savings of time, so yeah. I mean the obvious advantage is there, but there there must be some disadvantage that has
1: everybody all upset. Uh, maybe a little bit. Uh, so I guess the biggest thing is that I was familiar with this back with my Core Two Duos because I purposely bought a motherboard that had them so I could use this uh, the desktop version of VPro, uh, even though I was using them as servers. I just, I just mm. needed the ability to mm-hmm. send a remote reset command, you know. The, the console redirection stuff didn't really work that well on the Core 2 Duos. Um, <laughs> Back in the day. <laughs> well, these ones, they didn't have the onboard graphics card, and so the, it didn't work. Uh, oh, but I okay. could still power on, power off, and reset over the network, which was all I really ever okay. wanted to do. Okay. Uh, you know, it was that or buy a really expensive unit to control the power. Yeah. Like, I think I'll just use this V-Pro feature. Uh, so, yeah. All recent Intel x86 processors implement a rarely discussed, I changed that from, they kept saying secret, uh, power, a powerful control mechanism that runs on a separate chip that apparently no one's allowed to audit or examine. Ooh, I don't think dun- they can dun- stop you dun- from examining it, but yes. you know I They don't know publish any audited. specs, any code. Right. Well, you know, it's their secret sauce. I understand that. I mean, maybe they should, and uh, you know maybe they could get somebody under an NDA to audit it or whatever like other people do for things, but... Huh. I don't know that anybody audits or examines an x86 either, <laughs> per se, right? Anyway, uh, so most or all of the vPro chipsets in the uh, MHC or MCH, which is basically the replacement for Northbridge and Southbridge, has an independent CPU that's not your regular Intel architecture. I think it's uh, ARC. Uh, on servers, the BMC is usually ARM nowadays, but it's you know just some other processor that's low power and embedded into the motherboard. It has direct access to your RAM. Uh, that's mostly because it needs some RAM to do stuff. But also, uh, if it's going to be able to scrape your screen off the built-in video card, that's how it's going to do it, right? By copying it out of the video buffer. Um, and has a special interface to the network card. So like most IPMIs, basically on the built-in motherboard uh, Ethernet port, when it there's actually two MAC addresses. One that's the one that you normally see in the operating system, and the second MAC address goes into the management engine, whether it's IPMI or Intel's ME or whatever.
0: So to the network, it looks like my computer has two network cards.
1: Yeah, basically it looks like your computer is actually a switch that's connected to two computers. Oh, okay, yeah. Right, the one cable, so you're going to one port on the switch, but there's two devices, so it looks like maybe it's behind another switch or something like that. Uh, and then it has this execution environment called the uh, management engine,
0: and Intel. and just to be clear, this is this is on some people's home desktop computers, but it's yeah. also on Intel ser- Intel server motherboards too. So it's the whole range yes. of okay,
1: yeah. So I've used a couple servers with the AMT. Um, it has a couple advantages over IPMI, uh, like the you can use a standard uh, VNC client to connect to do the remote management stuff, but it implements this weird crypto thing for the uh, weird double TLS thing that the only VNC client i know that does it is costs $100 per computer to license. Uh-huh. So i'm not a big fan <laughs> of that particular uh, uh, that set of servers but i've seen better and worse implementations so it's not the worst. Anyway, so the intel management engine is a subsystem uh get, is made up of a special processor that's physically located inside the chipset so on the motherboard not it's not part of the cpu. Uh, it's an extra general purpose computer running a firmware blob that is sold as a management system for big enterprise deployments. Like I said, you know, if you're big it allows you to, you know, set the bio setting on all the computers or be able to manage stuff or whatever. Um, on uh, some chipsets, firmware running on the management engine uh, is a system called Intel's Active Management Technology. Uh, this is entirely transparent to the operating system, which means that this extra computer can do its job regardless of which operating system is installed and running on the main CPU. So it doesn't matter if it's uh, if you're running, you know, BSD, Linux, or Windows, uh, or if your OS isn't working, uh, it lets you do it. Right? That's The big advantage over, say, you know, many IT departments made a lot of use of, like, Microsoft Remote Desktop, right, to do remote tech support. But that doesn't help when the computer won't boot. That's one of the things I like about DigitalOcean is they give you a console console access. access Exactly like that, yep. So the purpose of AMT is to provide a way to manage computers remotely. This is similar to an older system called IPMI or Intelligent Platform Management Interface. Uh, Although, you know, Intel would claim that uh, AMT does more things than IPMI. But it allows you to have VNC access to the screen. Uh, Depending on some settings in the management engine, uh, if I'm taking over a desktop computer, it will ask the user first. Like the whole outline of the screen will turn red. uh, And it'll be like, you know, press scroll lock or something to allow the remote person to take over your computer. This is to provide the user with some privacy and so that, you know, the IT department just can't walk in and take over.
0: Some even have a, a web server. Like a whole web UI using it, or and obviously there's yep. remote Windows tools to manage it too.
1: Yes, uh, yes, some of them do have the web server. Like this. so does IPMI. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, but it also allows on top of the VNC, you can do IDE redirection, so you can remote. Uh, so yeah. I can mount a USB stick or a CD, uh, a CD ISO on my computer, and make it appear on your computer. So I can boot off. You know, if I need the Windows rescue CD to get your computer working again, I don't need you to have it. I can just do it from my comfy chair here. Across the country. Or yeah, you
0: can do remote reboot to BIOS. You can uh, redirect the floppy, redirect the CD. You can send yep. commands. You can have it attached to images. You can power you, it up, power do it down. You do serial
1: over LAN or the full VNC thing. Yeah. So you know, yeah. if you have the newer versions of Windows that have a serial console, you can do that stuff. You can see how a tool like
0: this, where it breaks out into categories, here's all your users, and it's just, I mean, this is massively helpful for...
1: Any large enterprise IT thing, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, to achieve this task, the management engine is capable of accessing any memory region within the main x86 CPU uh, without that CPU knowing about the existence of those accesses. That's not so much a feature. It's just there's no way for the one CPU to know the other CPU is accessing the memory. That's why it's important that the management engine almost only ever is reading data, not writing, because mm. you know if you go and change something out from underneath, it gets really confused. Um, yeah, It has its own TCP IP stack and a web server, And basically, uh, on your one network port, there's basically a second MAC address uh, as if that one physical port is actually wired to two NICs internally in your machine, basically. Uh, And that's how it works. Uh, In particular, the management engine is classified by security researchers as ring negative three, which is interesting. So, you know, we've described security on computers in this concept of rings for a while. Rings of uh, security can be defined as layers of security that affect particular parts of a system with a smaller ring number corresponding to an area closer to the hardware. For example, ring three threats are, uh, you know, things that happen in user space. And there's ring two, one, so on. And ring zero is special that only the kernel is supposed to have access to it, right? Uh, And then they've invented ring minus one, which is the hypervisor. So that's somehow, you know, when you can... uh, do something inside a VM and have it affect the hypervisor. Or then you have SMM, or System Management Mode, uh, which is a special mode that Intel CPUs can be put into that runs a separate, defined chunk of code. If an attacker can modify the SMM code and trigger the mode, they can get arbitrary execution of code on your CPU. Hmm, okay. There's a lot of ifs there, though. Yeah, Uh, and so they define the management engine as ring negative 3 because... It's completely external to your regular hardware, but it gives you full access to that hardware. So is, although the management engine firmware is cryptographically protected with an RSA uh, 2048-bit key so that um, you know if it's modified, the BIOS will realize that it's not really from Intel and not use it, uh, researchers have been able to exploit weaknesses in the management engine firmware and take partial control of a management engine on earlier models, not on later models. So far, anyway. Uh, so this makes ME a huge security loophole as has been called by a very powerful rootkit mechanism. Uh, Because obviously, if somebody takes over the management engine on your computer and they have access to read anything that's in your RAM and take over your screen at any time, that is very rootkit-ish, right? Yes, especially if you can survive
0: OS reinstalls and things like that. And then you can reinfect the host operating system again and again and
1: again. (laughs) Uh, On systems newer than the Core 2 series, the management engine cannot be disabled. Uh, Intel systems that are designed to have the management engine but lack management engine firmware or whose management engine firmware is corrupt uh, will refuse to boot or will shut down shortly after booting. Oh, okay. Uh, so, so, there's there's no so, like, way... you break the box. Uh, yeah, well, if you try to break the management engine, yeah, that's yeah. probably what you'd prefer to happen. I suppose so, yeah. I suppose because it's an attacker. It's not going to happen by accident. Yeah. Someone's going to have to do it on purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no way for the x86 firmware or operating system to disable the management engine permanently. Right. Intel keeps uh, most details about the management engine absolutely secret. There is absolutely no way for the main CPU to tell if the management engine on a system has been compromised. Uh, we also discovered that certain parts of the management engine firmware are stored in a non-standard compressed format, uh, which gets decompressed by a special hardware decompressor. Uh, the That's research interesting. this uh, says his initial attempts to brute force the decompression scheme failed miserably. However, another group has had better success and published a tool on... Uh, uh, on their website here.
0: So, uh. the, yeah, the, you know, because I, th- I think there is a there is like a a project that's trying to write a libre firmware for this chip.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: I guess they have the capability and means to overwrite the chip and replace it with their own firmware.
1: Right. I guess I think you would need to change the BIOS on the computer as well to not um, check for it. Mm. Uh, but you know, things like Coreboot already do that, not on purpose so much as they never implemented the feature to check the signature on the management engine. They're like, just don't touch the management engine, it'll be fine. Hmm. Uh, but obviously, yes, if you could do that. Um, but yeah, so people have managed to figure out how to decompress management engine firmwares up to version 10, but not 11, which is already out. They haven't figured out version 11 yet. Um, if you're really that worried about it, if you get you know, a PCIe Express NIC and put it in your computer and never connect anything to the onboard NIC, then the managed managing can never be connected to. Now, if somebody overwrites the software on it, it can still do stuff. But if it doesn't have access to the internet, it makes it a lot harder for it to do anything. Right. So if you're paranoid about it, then you know don't use the onboard NIC and it won't be able to function. Okay. Also. All right. Because yeah. Because then it, that's not disabling it. and It doesn't mean somebody couldn't write malware into the management engine or something. Although that's pretty difficult. Um. It will. No one can ever connect to it if it's physically
0: not cabled. Really. I mean, it seems worth noting, so it's disabled by default, so it, sh- it ships turned off, and there's not, um, I, I think yeah, there's... you have to turn it on in the BIOS, and then you have, you could set a really long password for it if you really and want to I, use it. And I thought. think there's only, like, theoretical remote exploits, um, which is surprising me, since some of them run a web server, but I guess they're, well, most of the it exploits are local. depends on your local.
1: definition of remote as well, right? Like, you know the the management engine usually doesn't have an ip address unless it gets one from dhcp if it's configured to do that right and then in that case it's you know it's probably still not connectable from outside your lan uh hmm. but yes uh yeah most of the exploits against it are local because the computer trusts itself more than it trusts other people
0: if you want to know if your hardware has it uh that Libre uh, uh bios project basically, engine basically any motherboard
1: a link. that has an intel chipset that's newer than core, core two. 2 has it yes, yes. and we, lots of embedded
0: systems too Panasonic Embedded Systems,
1: Fujitsu, NCR, WinCore, uh, Look at all well, those. You you know, if you turn your computer on, you probably see it go by. Their Intel Management Engine. Dun, I see it on dun, most dun, of my dun. laptops and stuff. <laughs> uh, I'm not afraid of it, but uh, you know, it's good that people are looking into it. I
0: think it. here's why I don't. Here's why it doesn't bother me. I definitely think it's super good to be aware of the potential uh, downfalls and issues and something to plan mm-hmm. against and, and take precautions, like like Alan just mentioned, if you want. Uh, To me, it seems like it's the well. If a state actor wanted to take advantage of these systems to compromise your network and get in, they could come up with a way to do it. And and Intel's building this in, giving them a backdoor access way to do it. That feels like that's what the ultimate threat is. Is like an NSA type scenario where you're. But in reality, if uh, if somebody like the NSA or a state actor is coming after you. They're going to find a way in. And systems and technologies like this are fairly secure. And it's, it's going to be absolutely 100% within Intel's best interest to not have this be a disaster. Could you imagine the PR disaster this would be? So they're going to be pretty on the ball to keep this thing, I would assume, Well, we secure.
1: all know about firmwares, and all firmwares are terrible, but yes. Yeah. Uh, there, there may be only so much they could do. It, it comes back to, remember that uh, James Micken article from Usenix? It's like, if you're being massotted upon, there's nothing you can do. Exactly. Exactly. No amount of long passwords and GPG keys is going to protect you if you're being massotted upon.
0: I think there is room, though, for Mint- for Mintel to come forward and say, "Well, all right, well here's here's
1: uh, here's yes. here's an audit solution we've come up with, or something like that." Right, and, and stuff like that would be great. And uh, I don't know. The only thing I disagreed with the article from their tone was saying that this management engine was super secret; and nobody knew it was in their computer. It's like it prints out. Like this much information every time you turn the computer on, yeah, and it announces itself all over the place, and I knew it was there.
0: Well, there was some, yeah. There's, there's. I think what it sounds like is there's a there's a very, very smart, very technical portion of the community that's never worked in IT, mm-hmm. and I think if you worked in IT, this kind of this kind of stuff is like, yeah, of course, that's. That's a thing, yeah. And some guys will yeah. be like, "Yeah, who here's a, my here's my send- setup with all of my machines on the list."
1: <laughs> so yeah, anybody who's used IPMI is always was like, "Why doesn't every computer have this?" Yeah, exactly. Um, makes me so want. Know, we, everybody who's ever used IPMI also hates it for how bad it is at security and a couple other things. So you know you can understand both ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I understand some people are surprised that it's in their laptop and every desktop, but it's because that's what enterprises want, and they buy the most Intel processors. Yeah, I don't know if AMD has something similar, but I don't think they do. And can't I really that's throw a new. why you don't see that many AMDs in enterprises.
0: You can't really throw a new NIC in a laptop either. That's kind of where you're stuck. Yes. Uh, so if it bothers you, yeah. Hmm. Although it should be disabled by default. Use a USB three. There you
1: go. go.
0: Problem solved. All right. Well, let's take a moment and talk about Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com to support this show and get yourself a discount off your first Ting device. Or if you bring a Ting compatible device, and you you might have one because they have a CDMA and GSM network, you'll get a $25 service credit. That'll probably pay for more than your first month. That's what a good deal Ting is. You get to talk to real human beings when you need help. They have a fantastic, super good. I would say, out of all of those, all the carriers I've ever tried, the best dashboard, including a great app to help you control it. I'm showing. If you're watching the video version here, I'm showing you a picture of it. That's legitimately what it looks like. It's super nice too because I don't. We 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 add and we remove devices, and I can't keep track of the phone numbers. But I can label devices in here, and it shows up across the Ting platform, which is nice. I can so I can go just look at how many minutes my Nexus is using, how much mi- minutes and megabytes, and all that stuff. I can set limits per device like that. They have a really great community, too. I want to just, uh, you know, I, I don't, I'm not going to play the video for you, but they have a, a video up on their blog you guys can go check out uh, about their um, about their fiber rollout. And I, I don't know, if you're following their fiber service, go check it out. They have a bunch of good stuff on their blog, including customer spotlights and cord cutting tips and all that stuff. Start by going to techsnap.ting.com and then consider picking up one of their SIM cards. If you have a device you want to get connected to the Internet, uh, like a, you know, a security system has been a pretty popular one. Uh, I think both now uh, Noah and um, uh, uh, Chase are using Ting Sims in their security system. that just send off, you know, a JPEG or a ping. Take very little data from time to time, so they're paying six dollars for the Ting line and then any usage because that's just how the Ting model works. It's just your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes, and that's all you pay for. They got feature phones starting at forty-seven dollars. And then they go up from there. Some nice, really nice base Android phones that are good value that give you nice current installations of Android, Uh, all the way up to like uh, the Nexus 5, 5X, the 6, of course, the OnePlus, the Apple Internet phone, the LG phones, the uh, Samsung S6. They have all, and uh, of course, the Note phones and the S7 phones. They got everything. I got everything over there. You can buy them directly, too, if they're compatible with Ting, and just bring them. Like, go get a Nexus from the Play Store. Then you get a straight Google experience with a carrier that you can use any way you want, with no contract and no early termination fee, and never gets in the way of those updates. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. Running the Nexus on the Ting network. It is a pure, clean setup. TechSnap.Ting.com. I feel like our next story, Alan, is like a service announcement, like a public service announcement. How to write... A good service status update.
1: I, feel I like figure, uh, you know, a bunch of people that watch the show probably work somewhere where they might have to do this. Or, you know, you can appreciate this from the user side as well. Yeah, You know, uh, it also, at the end, gets into postmortems. And it's one of mm. the favorite things to do on TechSnap is <laughs> to go through postmortems and see how people learn from yep. what happened. Uh, and it's kind of about both of those. Uh, so, yeah. The lowly incident status report page uh, happens to be one of the most essential pieces of communications a company ever gets to write. Hmm. You know, yeah. usually it happens when your company is having a bad time, your customers are hurting, <laughs> everyone's Uh-oh. busy, scrambling to try to fix things. Everything's crazy. But it's still important to communicate clearly and regularly with your customers. If you remember back during, was it, uh, Hurricane Sandy, we were watching the Pier 1 uh, Posts on their forums. Oh yeah. Uh, when they were like carrying the fuel up the stairs to keep the generators running and stuff. Yeah, and the Squarespace did that too. Did, was it Squarespace did that too, or it was pure I don't one? Know. I, Yeah. Yeah, pure I don't One know. was one of the data centers doing. Yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, in the at the end of every post is like, and we'll post again in, with another update in two hours. Yep. Or at, or, at, or you know, at two o'clock or whatever. Um, this is, you know, when users navigate to a status page, they're driven by a heightened sense of urgency compared to, say, reading your website or your blog or a newsletter. Uh, not many words get as dissected, discussed, and forwarded as the ones you put on your status page.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, uh, oftentimes very little is written and uh, possibly because very little is known, right? If something's broken and I haven't figured out why yet, I can't write all that much about it on the status page. Sure. Uh, and, you know, everything is read with a slant because when it's written, you're trying, you know, the people writing it are trying to make their company not sound bad. It's not like everything's broken because we had some technical debt we didn't deal with or <laughs> everything's broken because we were, you know, we didn't actually have a backup. We never did that documentation. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> oftentimes there's some fault and they're trying very hard not to have that fault land on them or whatever, right? Sure. And so... Everybody's reading it with this critical eye and they're like trying to pick every little detail out of like the wor- way you worded it and so on. And so it's very important to try to be clear and honest and, and straightforward with it. Hmm. You know, now let's state the obvious. Customers couldn't care less about a string of words posted on status update. What they care about is, am I in good hands? Every time we publish or fail to publish a service status update, we are ultimately answering that question. You know, so it has a list of goals. You know, one is uh, write frequent status updates. This can mean posting updates hourly or every 20 minutes. It really depends on how things are developing. Uh, there's nothing worse than an acknowledgement from the provider that there's a problem and it's from hours ago and they haven't said anything since.
0: And, yeah, that's you know, super there's, frustrating. There's
1: man. no ETA when they think it might be fixed or even an ETA when at least they will provide a second update. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's why you know it, it's important to like, indicate at the end of each update when to expect the next post. You know, I think that goes a long way to helping the users feel like they know what's going on. Yeah. Because you have to remember, a lot of times your customers have customers that they have to explain this to, right? And so keeping them in the dark is really not helping. Mm -hmm. The other one is uh, well-written status updates. The webpage goes more than I will here, but (laughs) uh, in in particular, you have to write authoritatively, uh, you know, not using passive things like it was decided that or something like that. You have to say we decided that uh, and so on. And write honestly, right? And, and avoid weasel words and weasel phrases. Like, hmm. yeah, well, our provider was having a problem and it was like, no, just tell us what's wrong, what you're doing to fix it. And don't worry about trying not to have the blame land on you. If you're weaseling out of it, you're just looking worse and not yeah. being helpful to me. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, it's like, remember that doing this is helpful to you. Right, you you get productivity from these updates. Uh, What we learned early on was that regular and well-written status updates reduced the amount of incoming support requests. Uh, Investigating the time to get incidents updated right, uh, or sorry, investing the time to get the status updates right, Hmm. was paying productivity dividends for the rest of the team because they weren't all having to answer support tickets about why is it still down or that that
0: makes a lot of sense.
1: Is it going to be? Is is this going to be broken when it comes back up? The better, right you, the better written your status updates are, the fewer emails and phone calls you have to field while trying to deal with the emergency. That's a great point. Uh, when faced with service interruptions, we drop everything in our hands and perform operational backflips 24-7 until the service is restored for all customers. During this time, our communication, or over-communication is a good thing, as is transparency. I acknowledge problems and uh, throwing the public light of accountability on all remaining issues until they're resolved. You know it feels wrong to expose yourself like that but in the end it's the only way to assure the customers that they're in good hands with you know people that are gonna work to solve yeah, it yeah then rather than try to cover it up mm-hmm. uh, while the crisis is unfolding we publish short status updates at regular intervals uh, we stick to the facts including scope of impact and possible workarounds we update the status page even if it's just to say we're still working on it and we don't have any more information yet as long as you know when the user refreshes that page they see that you know, somebody still cares that they're having trouble.
0: You know, the one thing they're not mentioning in here because the status updates. Also, yeah. sometimes you'll see companies do it for Twitter, and mm-hmm. they'll do like where, and that can work too.
1: Yeah, but it's really nice to have an authoritative web page yeah. where I can see them in yeah. order. Well, Twitter, especially lately, Twitter's been bad about getting stuff all out of order. Not just and- that.
0: I mean, I think you know, you want something on your site, or you want a failover page, or whatever it is. Yeah. But I have seen supplement I have seen supplemental updates over Twitter that. You know, that's like, I don't know. It's
1: There's yeah, a way I mean, to work with Answering it, questions yeah, on yes. yeah, to yeah, avoid yeah. them going to support and stuff is great. Uh, but, yeah, it yeah. really comes down to support and stuff. They say, once, service is, uh, once the service is resolved, it's time to turn our focus to the less urgent but equally important piece of writing, the postmortem. Mm. It demonstrates that somebody is investing time in their product, uh, that they take care to sit down and think s- things through. More critically, it also creates a space for our team to learn and grow as a company. Mm. And so there's a link on how to write a post-mortem. Uh you can go read that now, or I think maybe I'll cover that one next week.
0: Oh yeah. yeah, you know the the nice thing about those is if you if you if you get them right, you can kind of normalize and standardize failure in a way that doesn't mean you're the failure. It means
1: this is a situation we're now going to address and tackle as a team, and that's really what. Yeah. Well, because you know we covered a Google one a couple of weeks ago where they accidentally took down their entire cloud infrastructure <laughs> for a couple hours. <laughs> you know? Excuse me, sorry about that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, <laughs> But you know, everybody's glad that Google, and, and even Google, acknowledged that they gave more detail in that postmortem than most others because of how bad it was, and they felt they owed it to their customers to be open and honest about it. Yeah, and I think uh, a lot of companies could learn from that. <clears throat> uh, or you could just not do that. Uh, there's a link here to Apple offering absolutely no explanation for why they were down for seven hours.
0: <laughs> shh, shh, shh. Maybe they're trying out that new file system. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it blew up in their face. Uh, all right, so this would be a good point to mention. Oh, well, hello there. Hello there, web browser. That's my background peeking through right there. Uh, this would be a good time to mention that the uh, latest episode of BSD Now is out, episode 146, Music to Beastie's Ears. Yes. And, uh, now... We have now
1: interview with uh, USB developer Hans-Peter Selesky uh, talking about uh, USB in general, but um, uh, Particularly about sound, uh, recording, hooking a piano up to BSD, and a bunch of other interesting things he's done. Also that whole uh, Microsoft FreeBSD story, as well yes. as some recap uh, from BSDCAN. Uh, lots of recap from BSD can, including a selection of social media things. Uh, there's a video on there of me being presented with the Canadian version of the ZFS book. Hey-oh! Which I didn't think to have holding up I'll get I'll get that for the feedback segment <laughs> so stay tuned and you will see a copy of this book hey you know what I'll mention I just I don't even know if you know
0: this because this is brand new uh mm-hmm. Angela launched a stickers page at jupiterbroadcasting.com mm-hmm. slash snicker stickers not snickers stickers and look that we got a new uh tech snap logo sticker which is uh, it's a vinyl sticker right. it's cut to the swoop of the logo and the and the words of the logo okay. so it looks super sharp on the laptop or like on the back of a cell phone case uh that's so the y- one I have right I think so. It's the new logo, the the one that we got uh, for a little while ago. Yes. Here. Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, there you go, right there. There it is.
1: See it on my laptop. Isn't yeah. that nice? Along with uh, the new uh, FreeBSD dog fooding sticker. <laughs>
0: That's a dog bowl. And also, you got the BSD Now sticker on there, too, right? Yeah, show them the BSD, because we have that on that page, too. There it is. Yes, I need some more of those. I, I, I think. Uh, I think I have a couple. You might, uh, you might, you might ask Angie because people are starting to order some of these stickers, so she's doing some orders. Uh, so JupiterBroadcasting.com/stickers. I, I still have one pack left. Angela is hand packing and stuffing the envelopes and mailing this to to, to try to because to, the, there's really not a lot of margin in these. <laughs> so yes, <but laughs> they're, they're four dollars. <laughs> yeah, they're four dollars, and they're nice like $4 high quality stickers. One cent. Yeah, yeah. she did that fun. for accounting purposes. That the ones that that's uh, for accounting uh, purposes. So
1: uh, on business now, we also talked a bit about Henning, but I could uh, spoil it here. So. Uh, at the charity auction for BSDCAN, one of the other things that happened is uh, somebody donated a Linux Symposium t-shirt from like 10 years ago or something, right? <laughs> okay. Um, and it really wasn't auctioning for much at all. And somebody shouted out that, you know, if I pay you $40, will you just burn it? And it's like, well, no. When the fire alarm went off last year, we BSD BSDCAN. It messed everything up. Let's not do that. <laughs> Good. And we didn't set off the fire alarm. It was other people. But oh, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then somebody yelled out... Um, you know, how much to make Henning wear it to the closing social party? So, Henning is uh, one of the big OpenBSD developers. <laughs> um, and uh, so, yeah, I donated $100 uh, to the charity, and Henning had to wear this Linux Symposium t-shirt that on the back, it says, like, uh, a quote from Linus Torvalds, where he's like, I'm an egotistical bastard. I name all my projects after me. First Linux, and now Git. Um <laughs> uh, and, and <laughs> it's that, and so, um, yeah, so I paid $100, and Henning had to wear this embarrassing Linux t shirt all night. Love it. Uh, but, best part, he came up with the idea charging $10 for selfies. So, people paid uh, $10 to get their selfie taken with them, and that also went to the charity. That's great. Uh, and then we continued to pick on Henning, but the next thing that came up was the very last of those FreeBSD dog fooding stickers uh-huh. came up. Uh-huh. And uh, somebody paid a hundred dollars to make Henning have to have that on his OpenBSD laptop <laughs> through the end of the European conference at the end of September. Yeah. That's like uh, Noah auctioned off his body to wear a
0: Windows Vista shirt
1: at uh, Linux Fest Northwest. Yes, this is very <laughs> similar to that. Uh, and so, yeah, in total, Henning raised five hundred and twenty dollars uh, for being silly That's and being awesome. picked on. That's great. It was very good. He was a good sport. Um, so uh, that sounds like a pretty great episode.
0: So go check that yes. out. Also, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash stickers for that. So you can go grab BSD now uh, 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 and download that. Go get George the BSD version. George also sold
1: the shirt he was wearing. Wow. <laughs>
0: wow, that's that not the like, first
1: time that's happened. That's a serious episode. Did he have a backup shirt? Assume. In this particular case, he was planning it, so he did. Okay, okay. Apparently in the past when Dan did it, I doubt that he did.
0: Oh, okay. All right. Well, you know, that's We have brave. pictures of all that too. Check <laughs> <laughs> out <go> BSD now. <laughs> all right. Now with the news all done, let's go do the TechSnap feedback. for sending your emails to techsnap at com or pop in that contact link at the top of the JB site, or maybe you started a thread. No, you didn't. In that subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com, our first email comes in from Dave. Oh, actually, hold on. Yes. Hold on. Before we get to the email, we have a little instant follow-up right here on the show. Yes. We, want, we should do it right now. You were mentioning you had something from yes. the big event. So, from BSDK. Uh,
1: you know, the copies of my latest book here, Advanced Set of S., uh, we're on sale at BSD Can, nice. and uh, lots of people got theirs and got it autographed and so on. Cool. Uh, there's a great tweet that we've featured on uh, BSD Now of me signing Matt Aaron's copy of the book. Well, he's holding up the copy he just signed for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as a special treat, uh, Michael Lucas, as a thank you for helping co-author the book, made us uh, five copies in print of the special version of uh, the Advanced S book.
0: Oh, a Canadian version.
1: Oh, really? Uh, so there are only five copies in print. Uh, and the digital original was destroyed. So it can't be reprinted. Also, specifically, so I couldn't diff it against the original to see all the bits he changed. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then so I got three of the copies. Uh, Lucas kept one for himself. And the fifth was auctioned off at the charity auction at BSD camp. And I think uh, I will use one of uh, my Uh, extra copies to auction off at the EuroBSDCon charity auction, which the money for that goes to fund the uh, Paul Schenkeveld Memorial Travel Grant,
0: Hmm.
1: uh, which uh, makes sure that some person who can't afford to come to the next BSD conference gets to do so. That's cool. Uh, But what uh, Michael made here is the Canadian edition. As you see, ZFS is spelled (laughs) Z-E-F-S. And the title is in both French and English. Right, of course. <laughs> um, and this is Canadian version of the bottom. And uh, the price is in uh, Canadian dollars as opposed to the regular uh, U.S. dollars.
0: <laughs> That's a lot of more Canadian dollars. <laughs> yeah, the exchange
1: rate apparently was really bad the day that uh, Michael was doing this. <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a special uh, intro at the beginning here where it explains why Michael did what he did or whatever. And it also notes that uh, he's changed some of the footnotes throughout the book, uh, changed the spelling of ZFS to Z-E-D-F-S everywhere Good. in the book, okay. except for in the commands. So the commands are still right, but all the text <laughs> where it mentions ZFS is different. It's clever. And yeah, so he uh, changed the... Um, some of the footnotes, and then apparently made other changes to make the book more palatable to Canadians. Hmm. I haven't had time to go through the two copies of the book and try to find the differences. Assess the
0: differences, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh,
1: (laughs) But I was greatly amused by that. That's fun. And I thought I would share. Anyway, there's a video of the original presentation of my copies of the book uh, linked in the BSD Now show notes as well. Okay. So on. Right on.
0: Okay, Mr. Jude. Now, let's get into that first email. Dave writes in with a question about easy Secure copy. So love the show, longtime listener. Uh, I'm looking for an easy to use SCP slash SFTP server for Windows or Linux to replace our FTP server. I know Alan's going to recommend FreeBSD and Chris is probably going to recommend Linux, mm-hmm. probably Debian or Arch, but I want something easy to manage with a GUI or a web interface. Yes? I'm a lazy Windows admin. Needs to be able to admin users when they log in, throw them back into a network share, block IPs, and after too many log attempts, things like that, so they can shut it down. I don't mind paying either. Do you know of such a beast? What do you think, Alan?
1: Uh, well, if you're just using SCP, then the OpenSSH that's built into every version of Linux and BSD is probably your best bet. Uh, you don't get a GUI manager, but there are plenty of GUI managers for managing users. Um, so the, basically... Instead of having a separate set of users and passwords built into the FTP server or SFTP server, it uses the ones from the system. So, you would actually create users on the computer that's the file server. Uh, but, yeah. Uh, or actually, the chat room points out FreeNAS provides yeah, a nice gonna, web interface yeah. for adding users and groups uh, and setting passwords. Uh, but, yeah, the, or, you know, you can use Webmin on a Linux box or whatever. There's also, there is a FileZilla server for Windows. Now, as far as I know, FileZilla server only supported FTP. Does it actually do SFTP? Oh, you know, I don't know about that. I don't know about SFTP. Yeah. Yeah. yeah or SCP. Because uh, obviously, yeah, you want to do it over SSH, so it's encrypted. I don't know. I'll dig around and see what they say. Text. I think FileZilla server might support FTPS, which is mm-hmm. different than SFTP. Yeah, but not what he wants. FTPS is regular FTP over SSL. This seems like uh, a free As long NAS. as your client supports it, it works fine. This does but, seem like a free yeah. NAS gimme, too, because he wants yeah. he wants something to admin user accounts, too. And he talked about file shares. Uh, but obviously, that's not something you can run on a... You know, it's not gonna, he, You might not want to replace what's already on the machines you're using. Uh, But yeah, the regular OpenSSH works uh, very well for that. And uh, you can manage the users uh, using, you know, if if you have a desktop environment like GNOME or something installed, it'll have a GUI manager for users. Uh, Or you can use something like Webmin. Uh, But yes, FreeNAS is probably the best bet for that. Uh, And then you can just FTP in with, or SFTP in with something like FileZilla. Mm -hmm. Um, On Windows, you don't get a GUI manager, but you can use something like SigWin uh, to run SSHD on Windows.
0: If you're on Windows 10, you could install the new Ubuntu bash environment. And just there is SSH
1: in there as well. Well, also, Windows was going to integrate SSH into PowerShell, but I think that, and that was going to have a server too. So it would probably support SSH. I don't know, maybe it does. I've never, yeah, I remember that. Uh, I remember them talking about that. So, you know, maybe that'll be a thing uh, in Windows (laughs) 2012 or (laughs) whenever, what's, maybe it'll be 2016 when they include PowerShell? Server 2016? I don't know. Yeah, when 2016 comes out, it'll probably have built in SSH. They'll probably call it Server 10
0: or something. Yeah. Uh, Gary Z writes in about port knocking, kind of a common question with a little twist. I'm interested in connecting to my home server remotely via SSH, but I'd like to avoid having ports left open on my home router when I'm not connected to it via SSH. My router is pfSense. Uh, he's got the embedded version, and uh, what is the best way? He asks to set up port knocking schemes when making an SSH connection. Thanks a bunch, you guys rock. Cheers, Gary.
1: I've never bothered with port knocking. Um I'm not actually familiar off the top of my head how to set it up, but if you just look for port knocking with uh, PF, I'm sure somebody has a tutorial somewhere. Yeah. Uh, for people that don't know, port knocking is basically you connect to a series of different known but random port numbers. Uh, so it's basically a secret knock. Instead of connecting to port 22 to get for SSH, uh, you connect to port like 5000 and then port like 7152 and then port you know 11741. Uh, In that order, and then when the firewall sees that pattern, it knows, oh, that's the secret knock, and it adds your IP address to the allow list to connect to port 22. And this keeps the, you know, the port scanner bots from, from being able to uh, do that. Yeah. Although obviously you want the ports to not be in sequential order, otherwise it kind of, you know, a port scan could trip the rule. But
0: I sort of have the sense that I actually
1: would really like feedback. A way that's Fallen off. Yeah,
0: exactly. That's what I was gonna say. Techsnapreddit.com. Leave me. Leave me a note. I think. I think a lot of courseware still talks about port knocking, but I don't know if it actually happens a lot in practice because it seems like not a not an insurmountable thing to overcome, and it's just almost not worth. it. I, I don't know. Right. Techsnapreddit.com. Let me know. How do you like? What's it looks like from the client side? Even. Or at Chris Las if you want. You'd yep. have to have a program that supports it. Let, tweet me, at Chris Las. Do you still use mm-hmm. port Knocking? And What setup are you using? What cl- do you have a specific client that supports it? Uh, I, I'd like to get a sense if it's still popular yeah, amongst our I've, audience. I've never bothered. Neither have I. Uh, Adam writes in with a question about PFSense in a freeNAS jail. I'm on a really tight budget, otherwise I probably wouldn't even think about going through all these troubles. But I'm Can considering me the this option. One? Huh? Last week. Didn't we answer this one last week? Maybe. I know we've answered this question before. But anyway, keep going. Well, uh, I uh, He says, I was going to install PFSense in a FreeNAS jail. I think maybe we have. Uh, he says, I'm not proficient in networking, but I want to know if this is a problem. Some say PFSense gets compromised It can also access my free NAS. What do you think? Is PFSense in a free NAS jail
1: really a security disaster? This sounds familiar. I think it's yeah, a common so I, question, too. Yes, but I'm pretty sure we answered it last week or the week before. But anyway. Um... It won't work in a jail because pfSense is designed to be an appliance, so it doesn't quite work like that. Uh, although newer versions are going to get easier to do that with. Uh, the other uh, stuff in a jail shouldn't be able to compromise the host. Uh, in general, it works fairly well. Biggest problems are unless you use VImage, which is experimental on FreeBSD, um, you can't run a firewall in a jail. All right, mm-hmm. jails are restricted environments; so they don't have access to you know raw access to a network card. Also, by default. Jails are restricted from raw sockets, so they can't even set a ping room inside a jail. So your firewall is not going to work so well in there. Hmm. Um, even with image. Eh. However, if you're using FreeNAS 9.10, it supports Beehive, and you could run a VM on the FreeNAS uh, and uh, run your PFSense in that, and that should work. Cool. I would also. Oh, I don't know how. Uh, you know, FreeNAS doesn't provide that much support for Beehive. It's basically you're given this, like, here, the command line tools available, have fun.
0: Yeah. I think that's probably a good disclaimer.
1: Uh, I'll say this
0: question officially answered on the TechSnap program. We all will consider this closed. Uh, all right, moving forward. Joseph writes in about email archiving. Oh, man, I have a lot of, I have a lot of different things I've tried in the past around this. He says, greetings. I have a client who requested an email archiving solution. He needs to maintain all of his emails for 10 years for legal reasons. Could you recommend an open solution? The only two products I've seen are Pillar and Mail Archivia. Archivia or Archivia, I don't know. Thanks so much for all you do. Calligraphy, I think, is what his
1: IRC handle is. So email archive. You've got to archive email, right, Alan? You must have yep. some. Uh, so there's a couple of f- approaches. Uh, mainly, I use IMAP. Uh, and on the server side, we use um, what's called mailder. So every email is a separate file in the directory based on you know, what folders are in your mail. So if you create a subfolder, the mails go in there. And basically, each email is a, is a text file so they're very it's very easy to access stuff even without uh a mail client if you really need to um and then back that up you know with uh your regular backup solution of any kind um so you know for me I, I create a directory for each year so you know I have a 2001 a 2002 2003 2015 2016 and uh, once mail's old enough that I don't really want it in my inbox it gets moved off into the correct archive directory and then those are backed up on the server side. Okay, so I have tried... And to- it, it works on my phone that way and it works everywhere. Um, you can also, to avoid problems with like deleted emails and stuff, uh, you can set up something on the server side so that every email when it comes in gets sent to two accounts. Your main one that you actually use on your phone and stuff and delete stuff from and a second one where it's just archived forever. Now, I have tried, Alan, I've tried everything from having a dedicated
0: Thunderbird installation that just pulls stuff down and archives it. Uh, I have tried, I had uh, Remy in the audience. R- he wrote a really nice script that uh, connects in, downloads into an inbox format,
1: and then from there generates a nice, like, HTML index. That's... I hate inbox format because it concatenates all the mails together. That's why mm. I like Mailder, where each email is a separate file. Yeah, I something goes cattywampus... Only You lose yes, one email, That's right. Yeah, not yeah. the whole
0: inbox and all your emails. It might have been Mailder. It. I can't remember the format. But, you know, uh, so for the for legal reasons and with the 10-year scope, uh, I actually have specifically – I have had this particular issue. Uh, let me see if they're still around. Um,
1: but, you know, uh, Tarsnap and your Mailder can be very good friends.
0: I do not – yeah. Uh, let's see. I don't know if they still offer this as a service, but I have in the past – taking advantage of solutions that... What they, the way they work is, uh, and I don't, I don't think that they offer this anymore, but they look at things like, uh, I don't know, maybe MailRoute does this. It's somebody it's a, it's a service that you go, it basically becomes your spam filter and your archive solution. It's done at the send and receive level, so that way the user doesn't have to do anything. And they store, at least in the implementations I've used, they store the mail in a Zimbra server. Now Zimbra, it is an open source mail solution, and it uses SQL for the back end mail database. Now, this is where it gets nice for searching, doing querying, 10 years. If you have to go back and, for a legal case and pull something out, nothing beats Zimbra Search for this. It is There is, there is an API built around it that you can use, but there's also just an incredibly powerful search interface in there. Um, down to, you can just use SQL syntax. So, that is a really nice solution because... All of the systems I've tried, where the user has to a- uh, initiate the archive solution or require software installed on the user's computer, break when they when they send and receive mail from their mobile. Break when they have to do a new machine, or if they require user interaction, eventually don't happen then they break right. down. That's,
1: that's why I've always done it on the server side, with the the basically on the email server when it's where it stores the authoritative copies of all the emails. Which you know, my f- two computers, my laptop and my phone, all pull from the same account. That way, uh, I do it there. But I could definitely see the advantage of, instead of having just a mailbox store, which you can then connect an email client to, actually having it searchable uh, like that. Yeah, for sure, especially if you're using it for,
0: for legal cases, which in my case, my clients were. Uh, there's Mailstore out there. There's some other ones uh, to, to worth looking into. But the thing that was, the way all of these worked, uh, and I don't remember the name of it anymore, is they, you had, you essentially had a list of services. Everything from sp- spam and phishing, virus scanning, filtering, to you could flag individual mail accounts and say this user, this user, and this user, all their mail gets archived. Um, and the other really nice thing about it was because these these lawyers were super, super, super powerful mail users. Like they did they did million dollar, multi million dollar deals over emails being sent with PDF attachments. It was mm-hmm. super, super dependent on the mail server being functional. And when the mail server went down, they were literally losing tens of thousands of dollars. And uh, I would get phone calls with people screaming at me. And so mm-hmm. the other nice thing about this archive solution, because the way it was built in line to their to their mail system, is in a pinch, they actually could log into the Zimbra server and just resume doing their mail like normal in this alternative backup mail environment that had copies of everything they had done. There was, you know, contacts weren't there, and autofill email addresses weren't there, which they always wanted. But to be able to get to your email and send your email meant that they didn't lose, you know, $15,000 uh, from a client and so it was a, that it was a fully complete solution and SQL backed meant that we knew we had long term flexibility 5-10 years down the road where something that's not uh, you know, backed in a big right. database I mean, like that might not last for 10 years
1: well, that's the other advantage with Maildir because it's a standard format, yep, and basically yep, Mildur, each email is literally a text file with the contents of yep, the email. Yep. Uh, versus, you know, something like an Outlook PST file that you know they used to have problems when they got yeah. gigabytes and all these other issues. Cool. Um, it just meant that you can import that mail into anything. Mm-hmm. You know, every every has these every mail server too, that I know of supports Maildir. Except yeah. for Exchange. Exchange has some features too now, but I, I like to get it out to a different system. So, you know, uh, what we do with Scale Engine is our mail server, huh? we have the mailders, and that entire ZFS data set of all of our mailders is replicated hmm. to another server so that in the event our mail server were to just catch fire or whatever, right. uh, the backup mail server that's already, you know, receives the email, buffers it, and then sends it back to the first one when it comes back up uh, can always be flipped over to being the master and have all of our old email up to, you know, it lost maybe 15 minutes of email before, uh, between the last time it replicated and when the uh, master mail server went down. And any email sent after the master server went down is queued up on this backup mail server. So mm. you just tell it, hey, you're the master now. And it processes all that queued up mail, delivers it to my inbox. I change the DNS. My email client picks up the mail. And nobody else has to know anything changed. How? That is slick. All right. So Lee's
0: got our next question about virtualization of Windows servers. He says, "I spent a few years migrating our company away from Windows and Exchange. We now—that's <laughs> funny—we now use Google's apps and Ubuntu desktops and have Linux servers for all sorts of open source goodness." However. We do currently still have a Windows server that is used for hosting our ERP systems with Microsoft SQL. Our users remote into the server via Romania, and we also have a Windows DC domain controller, but this is just used to authenticate the terminal server for user accounts and sessions. Our Linux servers handle all the DNS, DHCP, etc. Mm-hmm. Time has come to upgrade this nasty Windows stuff. Unfortunately, Epicor, that's their uh, system, is Windows only. So my dream of ditching Windows altogether is still unreachable. But something I really would be keen on doing is to buy a shiny new server, install preferably Debian or Ubuntu server, uh, although other variants might be okay, and uh, on, on bare metal, and then virtualize two to three Windows 2012 servers, a, d- a domain controller, remote desktop with Epicor on it, and a Microsoft SQL server. I understand I could do this with Windows and Hyper V host, and then virtualize more Windows on top of this. However, it would be great if I could bare metal Linux, if I could use bare metal Linux in the future or even present, because it opens up the possibilities of utilizing ZFS and all the ZFS send snapshot goodness which I feel is a great level of protection against ransomware evilness. So my question really just comes down to, is it possible and what would be the best path to take for reliability and performance? Thanks in advance for all the great shows. Great question. So hyper uh, yeah. hyper hypervising Windows or virtualizing Windows. Yes. Or, yes.
1: Uh, so in Linux built in, they have KVM, uh, which I think can do Windows. Right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and they have Xen, which can also do Windows. In fact, Microsoft is even the contributor
0: of the source code for the drivers for Windows. In yeah. KVM, So they're pretty yeah. solid.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then uh, you can actually do it on FreeBSD. We have Zen as well. And then we have Beehive, which is just now getting full graphical support for Windows. So it's had support for Windows for a while, but it had to be headless Windows. Now it can actually be uh, graphical Windows as well.
0: Long-time wow. listeners are going to roll their eyes when I, they make mine. I say this because they all know I'm going to say this. But uh, it, De- Proxmox, Debian-based, KVM sits on top of ZFS. That's right, a super right. nice setup for him.
1: Yes, that would work there, except for it sounded like you wanted to use the host machine for other things, not just an appliance. But yeah, you could do Proxmox and have a Linux VM that does the rest of the Linux stuff yeah, and then is Windows VMs. Uh, the be- the nice thing about that is with uh, Proxmox, you could set up a second Proxmox uh, with- and then se- uh, have a- the ZFS storage be uh, separate as a third machine. And then you can live migrate back and forth between the Proxmoxes when you want to upgrade them. So you can say, all the VMs move from A to B. So I can reboot B and then uh, move them all back to A, reboot B, and then um, split the load between the two to have more performance or whatever. It really gives you that much more flexibility. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and I've, you know, man, I think I'm going on three years of running it in production now, I think. I'm not sure. I'm getting close to that. And uh, really no no complaints. And I have tried out the newer versions too, not extensively, but tried them out. Just look at them, and they look pretty nice. Uh, The way I do it... um, just totally depends on your setup, but the way I found that works really good for me, Lee, is I have Proxmox running on a, uh, on, a on a Linux machine that has all the Intel v you know virtualization support, and uh, the storage has a there's a little bit of local storage, but the bulk of the storage is all sitting on a FreeNAS server, which has the ZFS. I'm actually so I'm actually taking advantage of ZFS on FreeNAS. I'm not taking advantage of. ZFS on Proxmox directly because at the time I deployed Proxmox, it didn't have ZFS support. It does right. now, and, and uh, so you could do it directly.
1: It's not as it's not perfect yet. I've seen quite a few people having trouble with yeah. Uh, so Proxmox my setup might be a little better uh, for several reasons. The if main advantage of yours is that you could add a second Proxmox later. Yeah, and then be able to live migrate stuff back and forth because the storage isn't local to yeah. the Proxmox, but is on the free Plus.
0: App. I feel pretty solid in maybe adding future free NAS boxes in the future, and so it's I think it's a nice yep. setup. But Lee, try that out.
1: But any any virtualizer at this point can do Windows, um, yeah. And uh, there's there uh, Zen and KVM are both. KVM is included in Linux, and Zen is like the package you install. One, uh, the one thing that is, I, I don't know if it's true anymore, but I believe in the past, if you
0: used in Windows Enterprise as the Hyper-V server. As part of that, you get a pretty nice amount of Windows licenses for free to run in yes. the VMs. So uh, that might affect your decision if you don't have to pay for copies of it. Yeah, something to consider. If you'd like to send us an email, go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com contact and choose TechSnap from the drop down Or shoot us an email directly, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. We love getting your feedback and your questions and kicking them around on the show. It's one of our favorite parts of the show, so please send them in. For a future episode, and with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now the roundup of stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to talk about a few things and give you some links to read more on your own after the show. And a good mix of these links came from that crazy, crazy subreddit over at TechSnap.reddit.com. I think, this, I think I saw this first one submitted over there a couple of times, actually. An online black market is selling access to government servers for as little as
1: six U.S. greenbacks.
0: That's all it takes. Well,
1: this, probably because the machines don't have anything sensitive on there. Yeah.
0: 70,000 compromised servers, according to Kaspersky yeah. Labs, is in the catalog so. in 173 countries. Yikes.
1: Ah, so they're not all U.S. servers. No, but, no. So no. calling them government servers is probably a little... Government. Wrong. Government
0: servers. Uh, yeah, that's what the headline is. Uh, mm-hmm. So so this is a good one. This, speaking of
1: headlines, how about this yes. one?
0: Dropbox smeared in a week of mega breaches. What happened, out Yeah.
1: So uh, remember all these mega breaches with the, like, the Tumblr, MySpace, LinkedIn, etc.? Yes. And uh, so LifeLock, one of these uh, you know, identity theft protection services, mm-hmm. well, they monitor these and they uh, try to tell you uh, like, match it up with your credit card statement and tell you when a service you're using is compromised. Well, they got some false positives going on. Basically, because of all the Tumblr and so on breaches, they're like, oh, Jeez. all the people that got were affected by the Tumblr breach had Dropbox access or whatever. And so they started saying Dropbox was compromised. It turns out they weren't. Ah. And that their automated breach detection system was bogus and started blaming Dropbox uh, because, you know, it's, as Krebs has talked about before, you know, when... When a whole bunch of credit cards get stolen, the banks look at, all right, what charges are common across all these credit cards? Sure. Well, sometimes there are things that are common to like every credit card, not just the ones that were stolen, Mm -hmm. right? You have to look at it both ways. You have to be like, all right, what charges are on all of these credit cards, but not on everybody else's credit card too, right? You know, if you looked at all the people who's had their credit cards stolen uh, that do some kind of online shopping... I imagine most of them also have Netflix or something, right? And that would also be on there. Anyway, so uh, LifeLock wrongly accused Dropbox of being a source of a breach when they totally weren't. Wow, that's embarrassing because that's yeah. supposed to be their thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it turns out their thing is totally bogus and, and you know, it's all about lipstick on a pig. It does feel like that, doesn't it? Um,
0: this one's a little unfortunate. Let's Encrypt accidentally spills 7,600 user
1: emails. It's a relatively small number. It, yeah, it is, and it says accidentally spilled. So I wonder what happened. Did they? Post uh, a we file? are aware of
0: an issue with emails sent over the past few hours and apologize. Uh, the email and update to this uh, subscriber agreement had a list that contained at least seven thousand six hundred eighteen email addresses appended uh, to the. So the probably people subscribed to a certain list. And they all were in. The ah, and
1: so everybody on the list got see everybody else's email. Yes, apparently. Yes. Yes. You know that Oops. just happened
0: to me. Uh, the community I live at, the manager of the community sent it out and accidentally cc'd, and then tried to cover Instead it up. Yep. And then uh, tried to cover up by sending the same email but bccing everybody. <laughs> I'm like, oh, what are you doing now? You're not doing anything.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, somebody did that when they're organizing a meetup thing, and I was like. Well, I would normally make fun of you for this. It was quite useful to get a couple of those people's email Yeah,
0: address. right. Exa- it is actually. Like the one that they're actually going to read because
1: they signed up for a, a, a meetup with this one, right? <laughs>
0: mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, I was like, thank you. I actually wanted some of their email addresses. All right. So, what is this? The Zettabyte file yes. system from uh, March 3rd, 2016, brought to you by Matt
1: Aarons. And Kirk McKusick. So, uh, Kirk McKusick, who's uh, one of the original developers of BSD before there was such thing as FreeBSD and NetBSD and so on, Back in the uh, teaches a class. Uh, um, it changes each year, but he's basically got a couple of sets of them. And uh, the one he's teaching this year, starting in January, was the FreeBSD Intense Code Reading class. Uh, so, oh. learning about how to write an operating system by looking at the existing code of FreeBSD. Uh, well, one of the weeks, uh, they're sent that they've covered the chapter of the uh, Design and implementation of FreeBSD textbook about ZFS. Cool. Uh, So they had a guest lecture. So for that entire, it's almost three-hour class, uh, they had Matt Ahrens come in and actually walk through how reads and writes actually happen inside ZFS, like the actual code that all of it goes through. So this is, you know, quite intense. uh, But even if you don't understand it all, just, you know, listening to it could be uh, quite... Edifying. That's really cool. I haven't had time. Like j- this just got posted like yesterday, so I haven't had time to find three hours to go through it yet. Uh, but I will. And it is uh, uh, linked in the show notes if you guys want to mm-hmm. watch it. Yeah, it also comes uh, has a nice succinct uh, summary of what ZFS at the stop and go uh, at the top and goes through it. Huh. Uh, yeah. So did you hear about this spam king who sent 27
0: million Facebook messages? He's getting 30 months in jail. Uh, that's kind of that's all you really need to know, I suppose. He yeah. compromised more than five hundred thousand Facebook accounts between November twenty-eight and March two thousand and nine. Also
1: has to pay three hundred and ten yes. thousand dollars.
0: That's the other good thing. <laughs> That's, no. Wow. Jeez. So there you go. Spam Kings brought down. Now this next story caught my attention.
1: Samsung yeah. acquires uh, remind me how I say Joy- it again.
0: Joint. Joint. I thought so.
1: Yes. So so Joint is a company that makes um Smart OS, which is uh, a version of Illumos, which is a fork of OpenSolaris. Solaris. Uh, basically, they make uh, a, stat, a technology stack based on ZFS, uh, the KVM hypervisor, uh, and um, this technology they have to emulate Docker. Uh, so you can use the Docker tools to interface with the thing, but they don't actually use Docker. They use their own implementation that's more secure, okay. and they run it in Solaris Zones, which are like FreeBSD jails. So unlike Linux containers, they're actually isolated, and, and you can't break out of them. Uh, But anyway, they're a cloud provider. And uh, so it turns out that Samsung was interested in uh, using something like that uh, for all their cell phones and their next generation Internet of Things and like Hmm. for smart TVs and so on. That might actually make some Uh, sense, huh? Yeah. So they came to Joyant and was like, "Uh, so does your thing actually scale to, you know, say everybody's cell phone using it? And Joyant's like, well, we don't know. We don't have that many computers. (laughs) And and I think they were going, he's like, well, we would would need 100,000 more servers to find out. And you know we're a startup. We don't have that kind of. And Samsung's like, okay, um, here's a hundred thousand more servers. Really? And, uh, let's see if it works. Really? And it, yes. And it turned out it did work. And then so uh, Samsung has acquired Joint, but will continue to operate it as a separate company. Um, uh, that's just owned by Samsung. So oh. it will continue to be basically the same as it was, mm-hmm. um, except for maybe have a bit access to more money. That'd be nice. Uh, and also, Open Smart OS will remain open, and that will continue to open source things. Uh, And, uh, you know, um, Brian Cantrell will still be allowed to give interviews, which is the most important thing to me. (laughs) So we still get great episodes of BSD now. Yeah, uh, but uh, it seems like pretty interesting news, and we have a link there to uh, a letter from Brian Cantrell about it, and uh, it has a link to a letter from the CEO about it as well, if you're interested. Uh, But basically, they made sure as part of the deal that they will continue to get to be an open source company uh, making their product open source. Sounds good. Uh, I think part of the reason for that is the reason people are willing to adopt SmartOS in the cloud is that they can also run the same thing on their own servers or and know that they could migrate to a different cloud provider if they needed uh, because the whole stack is open and available there. Mm. And that, you know, you avoid the locking you get with, say, something like Amazon.
0: So, should we start talking about lava? Watch out, lava! The floor is, low, it's large-scale automated vulnerability... Edition. <laughs>
1: I What so, is love it. So, this is a, a paper about um, basically making it easier to detect vulnerabilities by randomly adding vulnerabilities to existing code and seeing if you can find them. Oh, interesting. Like putting a
0: plant in there and seeing if people.
1: That's great. But Testing basically, you. it's all about uh, bug finding. Hmm. So, it's cool. definitely an interesting read. I didn't have time to read the entire paper. Uh, but it's interesting.
0: Every now and then, paranoia proves useful. Very clever phishing attempt to grab my Gmail account. This one is super subtle. And he has a picture here of the, yeah, so uh, of Gmail the headers. Of uh, the
1: headers from his Gmail. So he gets a, an email uh, claiming to be from Gmail uh, saying that someone uh, signed up for an account uh, with the same name as his, but hmm. with an extra letter. So he, it's like his account name is like NAA something or whatever. Mm-hmm. They added one extra letter to it. Uh, so like N A A A blah blah blah, um, saying hey this new address has been registered uh, and you know it's claiming it's yours or whatever, uh, and so there's a link to it, and when you hover over the link you see it's actually a real link to Google. So you know oh that's not phishing then right? But the link is to disavow the new account, right? To say that new account's definitely not mine. Okay. Uh, I shouldn't be associated with my email account or whatever. Uh, Except if you look at the link very, very closely, it's the version without the extra A. So if you follow the link, you're disavowing oh. your account, oh, allowing man. the bad guy to take it over. Oh, man. That is super wet- subtle. That is, that uh, is basically wet- clever. The, the link actually goes to real Google, not some phishing site, so you would almost fall for it. Uh, and it basically gets you to disavow your own Google account.
0: Mm-hmm. hmm
1: <laughs> <laughs> Uh hackers. Which then steal. someone else could uh, register the same account and then do a password reset on your Twitter and yeah, boom, talk a lot they have oh ours. yeah, uh,
0: hacker steal forty five million accounts from hundreds of car, tech, sports, and sports forums. Yikes! This is just it's like a yeah. so
1: this one company ran eleven hundred forums, mm-hmm. including like car guide, this guide, that guide, other thing guide, and a bunch of similar kind of junky websites, honestly. Yeah, uh, But all of them had forums. A lot of them were running outdated, uh, vulnerable versions of vBulletin v and so on. And in total uh, the attackers managed to get 45 million accounts out of the 1100 forums. Most of them appear to be using MD5 hashes salted, mm-hmm. but probably not very well. Mm. Uh, I think if it's vBulletin, it's not very good and almost every pa- password cracker has built-in support for the custom thing vBulletin does uh, because it's easy to do really fast and it doesn't actually provide much protection. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could crack the crap out of this on a video card <laughs>
0: Um RSA keys, RSA keys can be harvested with microphones?
1: Yes. What is this? it so uh, no, your comp- your CPU makes certain um like coil whine noises. Oh my god. Um uh, based on what kind of math it's doing. That's and, hilarious. Uh, by recording your computer doing that a couple times, by, say, you know, sending you encrypted emails and having you decrypt them, uh, it could pick up enough of it to maybe recover your entire 4096-bit RSA key. Hmm. We've talked about attacks like this before, but they didn't work against keys that big. Ah, uh, okay. I thought They're usually there. like a fraction of the key, not an entire 4096-bit key.
0: This next one might get some audience members' attention. A telegram bug allows attackers to crash devices
1: and soak up your phone bill. Soak it yeah. up. Uh, yeah, so this one, they could crash your phone and uh, make your phone make calls and so on and drive up your phone bill a lot. So yeah, As, you, hopefully there will be an update to the Telegram client and you can avoid this. This article says that
0: uh, these guys are just gaining p- uh, popularity like crazy Telegram is. Yep. And uh, so the, they basically found a flaw that I think the way, yeah, it's just like a huge, huge file, right? Here they have a, uh, they call it the message size restriction bypass, yeah. So <laughs> uh, I will watch out for that because I do enjoy myself some te- Telegram. Laid off with a non-compete, this bill would guarantee salary. The, this is yes. a nasty thing.
1: Uh, yeah, so basically a thing a lot of companies do uh, when they hire you is make you agree to a non-compete clause saying that you know, you're working for us and we're going to give you access to our you know, secret sauce, uh, but that means that you cannot work for one of our competitors for the next three years or something like that. Right. It, basically, you can't work in this industry uh, you can't work anywhere where the secret knowledge of hours that you have will be of any use, uh, and there can be pretty problematic. You know, um, yep. for example, uh, what was the name? Um, who is the MSNBC broadcaster? Brian uh, Williams. Got fired? No, before that. Uh, the, oh, the opposite of Bill O'Reilly. <sighs> oh yeah, Key, uh, Keith, Olbermann. Keith Keith Olbermann. Keith <laughs> uh, Olbermann. Well, he, he, he got fired, and he's had like a three-year non-compete clause mm-hmm. left. Mm -hmm. So that meant he couldn't be on TV for the next three years and basically ended his career. Uh, Well, in IT, these are very popular. Like currently 18% of all U.S. workers are under some kind of non-compete clause and 37% of all people will be under one at some point during their career. Yeah, I had them when I took on clients. Yeah, and uh, some of them are getting obnoxiously long. In particular, in Massachusetts, they're worried about this because Dell and EMC are merging, and they both have large corporate presences there. And uh, you know, some people will be made redundant by merging the two companies cool. together. Yeah. But those, if those people cannot work in you know building servers or making storage appliances for the next couple of years, that's where all their skill set is. Those people will basically be unemployable because all their experience is in a domain where they can't work because of this non-compete agreement. In California, they've gone so far as making these non-compete agreements unenforceable so they don't actually apply. Yeah. So you can just get a job anyway. Yes. Uh, But what they're proposing in Massachusetts is that if you have a non-compete clause with a company and they lay you off or basically fire you without good reason, um, they will have to pay you 50% of what your salary was for the rest of the non-compete clause. Hmm. So you can still go get another job but they have to pay you half of your salary for the rest of that non-compete clause. I see um, that's a good way to motivate the companies to not include those non-compete clauses or let you edit them if they do lay you off. Yeah, truthfully, that's really what it is. Yeah. Uh, But the big idea here, I think, is that Massachusetts is trying to force these companies not to lay a bunch of people off, uh, especially under non-compete clauses where they wouldn't be able to get a job at a competitor and Mm. so on. Yeah, that could be a mess yeah it could be a big mess so it'd be good if they figure something out for it oh
0: geez this this na- i didn't notice this one before we started the show a man in the middle attack against keypass
1: oh boy yeah so uh the bigger one with this one i think is the hype around it that apparently keypass doesn't want to fix it because it will break uh their ad delivery platform or something oh really yeah i don't know all the details yet uh um, I didn't have time to really dig into it, but yes, apparently there's meta-metal attack uh, against KeyPass's update check because it doesn't go over HTTPS. Hmm.
0: Well, I know a lot of folks in the audience are uh, fans of KeyPass. It's good mm-hmm. to be aware of. So you should read about it, see what you can do, and patch mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. if you can. So uh, we have an email here from uh, Hacker OpsSec. Grug. What's uh, that? So um,
1: yeah. it's it's uh, the Grug on Twitter. Oh, oh okay, the Grug. Security. Anyway, the grug. Um. <clears throat> this is basically an email chain going back and forth with uh, conference organizers that are complaining they can't get good talks and so on. Uh, and so it basically spells out how to improve InfoSec conferences in general, but uh, basically applies to any conference, really. Uh, uh, about how to get better submissions for your call for papers and so on. Hmm. Uh, part of it is you know chasing down certain people you want, uh, but realizing that, you know especially in InfoSec, there are big conferences like Black Hat. If you're a security researcher and you've discovered some new big thing, do you want to present that first at the little regional conference or at black hat? Hmm. (laughs) You know, which one's going to get you a job or more funding for your startup or whatever. Right. Uh Uh, And you know, a lot of the problem is that a lot of these conferences have been taken over with like marketing fluff and so on. and, And really aren't about the thing. And he also says that, you know, the one hour talk thing isn't, the best way for knowledge transfer, right? If you're going to have hmm. a lecture, it's going to need to be longer than that. And if it's just like a product demo or whatever, it probably needs to be a lot shorter than that,
0: you know? What do you, so just, uh, so self had a, South, Southeast Linux Fest had a talk where uh, Iculus, a Linux gamer, his talk was how to cook. He did a how to cook talk. Uh, what do you, you? What are your thoughts about that? Like, I go to technical um, conferences. I had to cook. to cook talk. I think it probably you know. people probably probably liked it, but it also seems like I don't know. It's not what I go to that those place. things for.
1: Yeah, exactly. There's <coughs> um, a little bit of that. You know, if it can be related back to the subject, it probably makes more sense. You know, if, if you're you know <laughs> yeah. controlling the stove with a beaglebone black or something. No, no, it was just making stuff. pasta. Yeah. Just yep. making pasta. Well. In particular, you know, maybe a lot of people at the conference needed to help learning how to cook. That <laughs> be a problem. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen that yeah. graph of uh, yeah. Linux conference yeah. T-shirt size over yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm just saying the,
0: the struggle is real. It is that is true. Um, all right, so uh, you ready for this one? How about a little password autocorrect without compromising security? Yeah. Dun dun dun. Uh, my
1: biggest question here is how do you end up having to store the password uh, on the server side to be able to deal with that? Because hmm. uh, your typical hash seems like it wouldn't work in that case, hmm. and that seems problematic to me. Password typos
0: and how to correct them securely at the recent I TriA symposium on security and privacy. Three common types of password see errors.
1: The advantage of uh, solving the problem of that you know you're trying to type your password on your uh, phone keyboard and have problems, and that often results in people using a weaker password on their yes. phone than they would like to. Yes. And being able to deal with that would probably be good, although I I, I think you know something like LastPass or or something on the phone probably makes more sense than that. But Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting. I haven't had time to dig into it. Uh, That's why it's just a roundup story. But uh, it could be. I I just do wonder about uh, the server side of it, how that Mm. has to work. You say
0: access, and I think Microsoft, but that's not what this is about, is it?
1: No, this is a little uh, short story about uh, kind of, social engineering kind of a little bit. I I haven't actually read the whole thing, but it's a short, short story. Uh, And uh, it seems pretty interesting. I think the audience would enjoy it. So uh, check out the link in the roundup.
0: Okay, we're rounding down the roundup now. And uh, I wanted to just put a little, it's been a while since we've talked about uh, flash drives and and, uh, SSDs. So I wanted to put a review in here from a on the Crucial MX300 750 gig SSD with their 3D NAND technology. 3D NAND, which is a quite different path than what Samsung took. So it sounds like a pretty interesting okay. technology.
1: I'm really interested to see uh, Intel's 3D Crosspoint. Oh, yeah? yeah. <laughs> uh, just Did I tell you about the NVMe uh, PCI Express card I got to play with in the FreeBSD cluster? Uh, I don't think so, no. So it's a PCI Express card uh, with the flash on it. It's like the P3700 or whatever. They, okay. they make a regular SSD version of it, but it's not nearly as fast. Okay. Because big difference is with NVMe, instead of it pretending to be a hard drive, it knows it's Flash. Right. Uh, and so you need special drivers to access it. But when you have those, um, in, normally with a hard drive, you can do one command at a time and hard drive support having a queue of like 10 or 30 commands that you're going to send it so that it, it can do them. It doesn't have to say, oh, I'm done. And then sits there idle. Well, wait for you to send the next one. You mm-hmm. can have a list of things for it to do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it sorts those by an el- elevator algorithm to try to catch, do them as quickly as possible. With an NVMe, uh, in the current generation, you can do 64 commands at once because there's no head to physically move, right? Oh, so, you man. just read the different parts of the flash. In newer ones, the, the protocol supports up to 65,000 operations concurrently. <laughs> uh, but anyway. Yes, please. This NVMe device is 800 gigs. Uh, so, you know, you can buy an SSD like that. 800 gigs. It reads... At 3,800 megabytes per second, mm. that's, that's almost four gigabytes a second, and writes at 1,800 megabytes a second, almost two gigabytes per second. Wow. And you do 64 operations concurrently. It's oh. the exact same flash that's in the SSD, but by having the better interface, it's that much faster. Oh, man. Like, that same SS- as an SSD, you're pretty much capped at like 600 megabytes a second mm-hmm. for the exact same thing. It's like 600... Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) 3600. I want that so bad. uh, And so, uh, Supermicro has a motherboard for it now where you get 11 PCI Express ports. Whoa. Motherboard. Holy. They're all like 4X. They're small, but it's basically the entire motherboard is just PCI Express ports for this. Holy crap.
0: Holy crap. Yeah. Uh, The future is speed. Very fast. Uh, Okay. So, Clam AV. Not so fast. An unauthenticated command exec. What's going on here?
1: Yes. Uh, so there's a vulnerability in ClamAV, which is the basically server-side uh, virus scanner. Massively for Linux popular PS2. one. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, owned by Cisco now. Uh, where you can uh, inject a uh, command and make it do it. Hmm. Uh, without having to be logged in or have any access. So you can trick the virus scanner into doing things, which is never a good thing. No, that is not. And then our last story for the roundup from BlueCrypt. Yes, yeah, this is over at KeyLength.com, and it helps you pick how big of a key you should use on your encryption or your hash. Oh, out. cool. So, KeyLength.com. So there you go, slash, uh, well, probably if you just go to KeyLength.com, it'll yes, probably take it you there. Find, yeah. And you can see there's a, it turns out there are like eight different guides on how to decide which one to use, and this one allows you to look at all of them at once. Hmm. So you can enter a year and see what you should be using in that year. Or you can enter, you know, a, a certain crypto size. Like, no, use what, uh, enter what you're currently using, and it tells you approximately what your everybody thinks that'll be good until. <sighs> uh, but mostly we're like uh, twenty thirty or so for the current stuff should be fine. Uh, but it's too hard to tell. Beyond, you know, it's hard to project. You know, beyond some that. of the guides are like, oh, if you if you do uh, AES two fifty six, you're good until like twenty two fifty. It's like. Probably not. Yeah. And you know I'm not going to project out 200 years from now. Yeah, how do you know that? Hmm. You know, I'm, sh- I'm sure when they invented the Caesar cipher, they thought that was going to be great until, uh, you know, 2250. I really like the UI on this, too. Yeah.
0: It's, it's a, a nice, nice flow software. way to do it, to, to sort of understand it. So Yep, it's...
1: and it, they have links to all the actual guides so you can read the full PDF yeah. and see what the justification is for yeah. deciding that, you know, SHA-384 is good enough for now, mm. kind of
0: Well, there you go. Links to everything we talked about over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Just look for episode 271 of the TechSnap program, and I invite you to join us live over at jblive.tv. We do this show at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is... 4 p.m. Eastern, 200 UTC. Yeah, you can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash calendar to get that converted to your local time. You can also visit jblive.fm if you want an audio-only stream which is better in low bandwidth situations or perhaps, you know, you're walking around. I don't know what you do. I don't know what you do. You could also just grab the RSS feed and get the nicely edited, compressed, perfectly version that we've put together just for you. You can find the RSS feeds also over at the show notes. Okay, thank you so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week.